I mean, we could do Star Trek. Could. Go over to like keep thinking. <laughs> do it everyone. He's vetoing it every time you say you want to do Star Trek. Like no, That's a good movie. Solid movie. It's okay. <laughs> Corbin's a hater. <laughs> I don't think he's ever seen it. I saw it when it came out in theaters. Like two thousand nine. He doesn't remember it. Is what that no, means. Chance you saw it in two thousand nine in theaters. Yeah, I did. My mom's a big Star Trek fan. We went. Yeah, you you don't remember it. I don't remember anything. I didn't. I mean, I've seen it since then. Anywho. Hello and welcome to Cody and Corbin have a podcast, the show where two former roommates talk about whatever we want because it's Cap Chat number three today. As always, I'm your host Corbin's vocal, and joining me is my co-host Cody Webb. K Webb, you excited to chat today? I'm very excited to chat. You know, it's a beautiful day. It's kind of the turn of uh, you know the summer season here. I'm in a great mood. And uh, yeah, gonna have a fun pod, I think. So I can't complain. This is the uh, third edition of our Cap Chat series. If you want to check out some of our other ones, you can go back to season three, episode 11 with Luke Manning or season four, episode 14 with Christian Steiner. Two great conversations, just about a couple different random movies. We do have another guest today. We got to welcome back to the show. Uh, one of the hosts of our April Fool's episode, my girlfriend, and Cody, not to make you jealous, but my current roommate, Mina Naki. Mina, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. Hope you guys all enjoyed that April Fool's episode. <laughs> I definitely enjoyed it. I did as well. Yeah, talk about our favorite sparkly vampires. It was good to not have Cody and I. <laughs> <laughs> I'd take Mina and Natalie over us most days, and... Uh... Yeah, great April Fool's up, I would say. Most of our viewers probably would as well. But yeah. sadly, they're stuck with us today, but they do get <laughs> Mina for another episode. Uh, I do want to say, you know, leave us a like. If you're watching this on YouTube, comment, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, at Cat Podcast. Uh, rate us on Spotify, follow us on Spotify, leave us a review on Apple. Wherever you're consuming this, just leave us some feedback, let us know. And yeah, share the pod with friends. Let us know if you want to be a guest. I think like I think a decent amount of people do end up going over to YouTube and, and watching that. Leave comments on there, guys. Like, yeah, keep you know chipping in, make this more of a community. I think that'd be fun. Absolutely. And uh, let us know what you think about our thoughts on the movies we talk about today. Specifically, the way this is going to work is we're switching things up a little bit, but first we're going to draw a card from the Blockbuster movie game, a story game in the history of our podcast through We Have a Podgorithm and our various CapChast episodes. But we're going to draw a card, um, and they list things like movies with an and in the title, which is one we did for our last episode, or movies with a number in a title, or movies set in the future, for example, which may be contentious if you say Star Wars is set in the future. But... <laughs> We're each going to name a movie and then we're just going to chat about it for, you know, an unspecified amount of time. We'll see where the conversation takes us. Maybe go down the rabbit hole a little bit. You know, we're, we're just going to see what happens. And it's very free flowing, laid back. For our second card, instead of sticking with the blockbuster movie game, we're going to move over to a game called Cinephile, which Mina and I love to play together, where all the cards are just actors so for example i just drew one out christian bale would be the first card and then we're just going to each pick a movie from that actor's various filmographies and we're going to discuss that so that's how we're going to be coming up with our different movies cinephile a much better group game than a duo game just gotta say it's just a heads up if anyone wants to play it make sure you got at least three people Makes very true very true before we draw a card, though, let's talk about some new movies, because, Cody, I know you've been into the theater. Mean and I have been going to the theater. Uh, yeah. There's a couple new releases. Normally, we'd save this for the end, but it's a cap chat, so we can do whatever the fuck we want. 
let's uh let's talk about air which which i know you're a huge fan of cody yeah i was a big fan um i don't know i kind of went in with not knowing what to expect a little bit uh you know matt and ben i don't know they haven't worked in a while together the last duel i didn't check out no i don't think anybody did (laughs) (laughs) with that budget too tough but uh yeah i really really liked it i think just the dialogue itself kind of speaks for itself and uh, some really fun performances. Ben Affleck, you know, uh, Phil, Phil Knight. Knight. Yeah. yeah. I thought he was really funny in that role. And Matt Damon was low-key a powerhouse. Uh, Viola Davis as well was really, really good. So cast-wise, it was on on point. You know, script-wise, I thought it was really good. I don't know. It's just something about, like, it's it's not really a sports movie, I guess. It definitely is, but not really. It's, it's like, like a like, marketing movie. <laughs> yeah. It, but it's got, like, it had, like, that money ball feel to me for some reason. I really liked it, and uh, I might go see it again in theaters. I'm not going. Well, yeah. Cody, it, it was a bunch of white dudes in rooms talking, so it, it definitely felt like Moneyball. Uh, but it's definitely not as good as Moneyball. It it, no. it is a little bit lacking, but I, I really enjoyed it as well. Mina and I went and saw it uh, last Friday. Matt and Ben, I'm going to love and support anything that those two do, especially together, um, especially, you know, working on this new movie. They've started their production company, Artists' Equity. All the, you know, profits are being shared amongst, you know, the actual people who are making it, which is something really cool. And it's obviously not to spoil anything in the movie, but it's significant. That idea kind of is very significant to the movie itself as well. Uh, Mina, do you enjoy it? I mean, it's hard not to enjoy a movie with Ben Affleck wearing like hot pink leggings. And that's quite the look. Gotta love the 80s. Yeah, it's a really good movie. I think something that I have to get past with movies like this is, there's always the suspense of you don't know what's going to happen, but this is our history. So of course we know what's going to happen. And so when I watch movies like that, I have to like actively pull myself out of that mindset continuously throughout the movie. Cause I just get annoyed. I'm like, well, I, yeah, of course he's going to sign, you know, stuff like that. Other than that, I really liked it. I think it's a great cast. Everyone works really well together. Can't go wrong with Viola Davis. She's just phenomenal in whatever she does. And I think it's a fun watch, especially if you like shoes and kind of want to go buy some new Nikes, not going to lie. Yeah, I mean, that's an issue with all true stories is of, you know, if you know the events that happen, there's there's not really any, you know, avoiding that. But when it's something as iconic as Michael Jordan signing with Nike in 1984, like it is still pretty incredibly imp- impressive that the script and Ben Affleck's directing and editing is still able to build a little bit of tension leading up to that final act moment. Something I really liked was the in-depth of them designing the shoe. I thought that was a really cool point that they clearly made sure to show is them discussing what the shoe needed to look like and what it needed to feel like. And I think that's something you don't always get out of movies like this. You more just want to hear about them talking to each other and haggling over each other. But like what the shoe was, was a big part of it, which I think is cool. Yeah. And, you know, it was cool to highlight that Peter Moore character, the designer of the shoe, um, you know, sadly, they kind of highlight at the end that he passed away right before they, they greenlit the movie. So he never got to, you know, enjoy the limelight of, of being celebrated. But it was it was definitely cool all around. It's just like a really fun movie. It feels like a movie that, you know, we say that it feels like a movie that was released, you know, 10, 15 years ago. It's got that adult drama, you know, tension to it. It's, I mean, Matt and Ben, who, you know, like we said, haven't collaborated in a really long time and really haven't necessarily been at the, Ben specifically hasn't been at the forefront of a, you know, popular movie in a few years. So outside of uh, Justice League. (laughs) We don't talk about that. Uh, And The Flash coming out. What are you talking about? Yeah. (laughs) That's Michael Keaton's movie. They're both in it. They're both Batmans. Two Batmans. Shout out Keaton. 
Yeah, I mean, funny enough, I feel like if this movie was released last year, like it probably would have came out on streamers, which is crazy. Well, that's um, it is an Amazon movie, so like yeah. it's it's laid out there. I mean, we're seeing Apple has recently made a commitment to release a lot of their movies in theaters. These streaming companies are realizing that in order to be profitable and in order for this industry to be viable, they have to keep theaters afloat and have to release things. So Amazon, you know, made that commitment. Obviously they bought MGM. So it was a little bit of a, you know, here's my background. Uh, it was a little bit of collaboration between those two companies as one, but I, yeah, you're hundred percent right. A year ago, this movie gets dumped on a streamer, the last Ben Affleck movie, the way back or whatever the hell that was called, uh, <laughs> didn't get any love. And it was just an Amazon dump off, you know, at the beginning of last year. So it, it's great that, you know, even though it only made about $20 million this weekend, it was in the conversation. It got great critic reviews. Um, and, you know, it's great to see. You know, I love good streamer movies and the ability to just stay at home and do stuff. But like after the last few years, I'm so tired of just staying at home and watching everything new. I'm glad things are coming out into the theaters that I really want to see having excuse to go enjoy it in theaters. I think it's more fun. And there's a lot of great stuff out right now, which is pretty decent to see in, in early April. Uh, let's talk about another movie that we all went and saw in theaters, the Super Mario Bros. movie, um, <laughs> which I think I'm at least not definitely not as high on as air. But I, I don't want to hate on it too much because it was a short, effective, fun little animated movie. It doesn't grasp for anything higher or um, really tries to tell any deeper story. I mean, there's a little bit of Mario trying to try not to disappoint his father, but it is very straightforward, very generic, very something that if you are five, you can understand and something that if you're 95, you can understand something that if it is translated into a hundred different languages across the globe, every joke will make sense. Every gag will, will be fluid and the story will make sense. It's very clearly built to appease a mass audience. And it's doing that extremely effectively. So props to that, I guess. I don't know why you're dissing uh, the Iron Man of uh, the Illumination universe. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're not wrong. It, it definitely knows exactly what it is. But I thought it did it pretty well. And and like the, the thing that I really like about it, too, is there's just so much fan service. The music to me is, is probably my favorite part of the entire film, just because they bring in so many of just these small music. Chris Pratt's uh, New York accent. <laughs> Jesus. That is pretty good. Uh, but hell though. Yeah, I, I, no, the casting is weird, especially for Mario. And then them having like the guy who actually voices Mario, like just thrown in as a different character too. I was like, why don't you just make him Mario? Like, I don't understand. Okay, over 80 minutes, it it probably gets old fast. I'll I'll say that. Like I I still think it's better than Chris Pratt. I mean, I agree with that. Yes. There needs to be a balance. I don't know. I mean, if it weren't for Jack Black as Bowser, all of those voices are just bottom tier for me for those characters. Like nobody Anya Taylor Joy is pretty good as Peach because she's gotta have that kind of sweet voice. And you want her to seem more like a powerhouse in this movie. So like having that confidence in the voice, I think works. But Jack Black as Bowser carries that movie as far as voice goes like he showed up and he did his job beautifully whereas yeah. everyone else kind of feels like they phoned it in they banged it on like half the cast but i think they missed half the cast like i really charlie like day. yeah charlie day is luigi i really love that too shout out uh always sunny but donkey kong like 
I don't know. Seth Rogen is just so clearly phoning it in. He does his stupid laugh. Like, fine. It worked for me like 50% of the movie. I was like, this works. And the other half, I was like, stop it. No, I can't handle it. Plenty has been said about this cast and nobody really put any extra effort beyond Jack Black to even do anything different from their own voice other than, I mean, Chris Pratt put in an effort, but it just was bad. The <laughs> thing about like Donkey Kong is Seth Rogen literally said, he was like, if you want me to play Donkey Kong, like I'm just going to be me. So if you want Donkey Kong to sound like Seth Rogen, then yeah, hire me and I'll do it. And I'll just read the lines for you. But like, I am not doing a Donkey Kong voice. And I don't know, we live in the age where every movie has to have a million stars, whether it's live action or animated. There are tons of great voice actors out there. And that's a little bit of a, you know, a dying breed, especially in, in mainstream movies, TV, there's still a lot of great ones. But it, it is a little bit unfortunate to see, you know, people like that just get cast in this and then just kind of show up like you said and phone it in a little bit but it's a mario movie for children so yeah i mean obviously nobody nobody really cares it's seth rogan in a mario movie but i don't know just kind of the difference between him and uh keegan michael key as toad like that doesn't even sound like keegan michael key. like he's actually acting his ass off i think there uh compared to seth rogan it's just sad yeah. i think i described the movie as a whole as just kind of like being set on easy difficulty because like every task is just instantly resolved and they're able to move on to the next thing it's like oh they meet donkey kong mario and donkey have to have a two-minute fight and then they're best friends and they move on to the next thing and they're just they're you know building out their crew they grab toad they grab peach like even peach is just like oh my gosh it's another human mario you're great let's be best friends all you gotta do is complete this task and i'll do whatever you want like i'm not even gonna question who you are or, or anything it's just everything is extremely simplistic for a reason i will say that when luigi gets lost in the dark world and then it's all like the horror scenes i thought that was great when he runs into the castle and there's the lightning strike and you see all the creepy uh red people with the like white faces or whatever behind yeah, it guys. and then yeah, I guess, cuts yeah. to black and it just you hear him scream like that's beautiful that was like so funny and charlie day did a great job with that like i like that that scene a lot i thought that was fun spinoffs incoming i think uh like a Luigi's Haunted Mansion that is definitely on the way. Donkey Kong movie's on the way. Smash Bros. movie, I yeah. would imagine, is is down I mean, the pipeline. With how much money this That's their secret wars. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Smash Bros. Watch. <laughs> I mean, but with all the money that has just rained in this weekend, like, Illumination is never going to stop. It's Illumination as well. Like, they've sucked every life out of the minions in five years. <laughs> God knows what they're going to do in the next ten with Nintendo. So, it'll be interesting, but... Like, I didn't hate this movie. I feel like a few down the road, I am really going to dislike, though. So I feel like it was another really good ad, like Air was for Nike. Like, I almost went out and bought a Switch because I was like, shit, I really want to play Mario. Like They integrate, like, each of the end of it. Like, you get your, you know, like, traditional Super Mario World, like, game version. You get the Mario Kart scene. You get the the Super Smash scene when he finds Donkey Kong. Like, there's all these little Easter eggs and cameo, like for each individual game that makes you want to go for it. Super Mario Galaxy on the Wii. Oh, I want to play that game so much right now. But I kind of like this movie, so I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. I, I think out of the three of us, maybe I liked it the most. Also, Corbin, I think maybe you're just bad at Mario. You're like, oh, uh, it was too easy of a level. Well, yeah, that's all the Mario games. Like, I guess you're just bad at Mario. But, but in terms of a story structure, <laughs> when everything is just handed to you, it's, yeah, I know. no, Mario's a Mary Sue. I'll say it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't argue that. Also, his like parents' inclusion is just like why. Well, all the New York stuff yeah. is bad. 
Just the ending and the beginning. I never thought of this all my life playing the games, but like they're the Super Mario Brothers. His name really Mario Mario. Like, what is their last name? I'm very confused by this. And I don't know why it took this movie to have me think about it, but it lost me. I, I believe canonically he is Mario Mario. And then That's terrible Mario. But they don't really explain that. Like, if they made, like, a funny scene with the family talking about that, I feel like that'd be good. But, yeah, still not explained for some reason. But they are still the Super Mario Brothers. It doesn't really make sense unless their last name is Mario, I feel like. So, I, I don't really know. At the Super Mario Brothers 30th anniversary festival in July 2015, Miyamoto said Mario's full name was indeed Mario Mario. <laughs> you know what? Fair enough. We've got Raymond Ray Raymond. So, like, that's it's fine, I guess. <laughs> Just a long story of Italian-Americans. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. That's pretty much uh, everything that we've all gotten to see. Two good movies. I'm sure you've all checked out Super Mario Brothers at this point. But go see Air as well. Enjoy your marketing movies. Let's draw our first card. I'm going to give it a shuffle. If we don't like the card, we can draw another one because we do whatever we want. Put it in front of you so we can actually see what it says. Because when you put it to the side of you, we just see black from your, your screen. Movies with a king or queen. So we're going to take a quick break. Everybody's going to consider and we'll come back. All right. We've all selected our movies. We'll start with Mina. Mina, what movie are you talking about that has a king or queen? I'm going to talk about The King. The King. Timmy Chalamet. Timmy Chalamet, who is a king. Uh, <laughs> oh god all right we're gonna move on cody short <laughs> king or queen what what uh what movie will you be talking about i went for a king as well but there are some queens in it uh you know no discrimination here i'm gonna go long live the king the lion king goat movie yeah, yeah. i mean we're talking about animation you know ratatouille episode upcoming got to bring up the lion king all right and then my movie i decided to go for a, a queen a well-known queen queen amadala from the phantom menace <laughs> Let's start with Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. And we can kind of use this as a jumping off point for some recent Star Wars news as well, kind of get everybody's reactions, their thoughts, um, because it's been like Star Wars celebration the past couple of days. So there's a lot of news, a lot of stuff. Going back to the original, the very first movie, right? You know, George Lucas, he had never made another Star Wars movie before this. Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, it was the first one. It's number one. And he was just ready to tell this great epic story across multiple... Obviously, I'm joking. This is the the first of the the prequels uh, that he decided to make following his original trilogy from the 70s and 80s, which is, you know, hailed as one of the greatest pieces of science fiction. The Phantom Menace was his, you know, his big comeback, his his big return, his continuation of the story. There was a ton of hype surrounding it. It's essentially an independent film that he financed himself along with the help of a toy company in Hasbro. Uh, he received a ridiculous amount of money to basically make this movie, and then he would create all these characters that they could then sell my god they have star wars uh, memorabilia was out the ass in the early 2000s and continues to be to this day but as a movie it is extremely ineffective at times racist um, at times just completely offensive story-wise but it ends with one of the better star wars moments in the entire franchise uh with duel of the fates and in that soundtrack and that fight and and darth maul as a character especially as a kid is is just something that is just extremely attractive and interesting and like this guy has two fucking lightsabers on either side that is so cool um but as a whole the movie is uh just absolutely shameful 
George, come on. Yeah, I agree with most of what you're saying. I mean, Darth Maul, I think, is, you know, a cool villain. They did give away the the double-wielded lightsaber in the trailer, but we weren't alive to see it anyway, so who cares? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this movie sucks in general. Like you said, I mean, most of the characters are just kind of stereotypes and uh, really, really bad writing, really bad acting. You didn't bring up, you know, Jake Lloyd, who, um, you know, pretty much just quit quit Hollywood after this movie because Star Wars fans are assholes. Um, shout out Corbin. He's definitely a part of that fandom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that. I mean, Liam Neeson's in it. That's cool. It's the only kind of live action Liam Neeson thing we get in Star Wars. So I like that. And uh, yeah, a young Obi-Wan, Ewan McGregor. I thought he was good in the role too. But, you know, there's there's kind of a lot of if, ands, and buts with this movie. It could have been a lot better. Um, shout out to your queen, Queen Amidala. Uh, both, you know, Natalie Portman and uh, Keira Knightley really just putting in, you know, great work all together for that role, I would say. Um, although the whole age difference between her and, and Anakin does get a little bit weirder if you take this movie into actual perception. But yeah, I would, I would honestly probably say this is my least favorite Star Wars movie. Well, I don't know. The Last Jedi's got to be up there. I, I have a soft spot. Star Wars holiday special, Cody. Well, that doesn't count. Yeah, we don't got that. Not a not a feature length film, but um, I actually weirdly like Attack of the Clones for some reason. I do I never, too. That's a really bad movie, Love but I, I definitely like it more than this one. I don't know between this or the Last Jedi, it's close. I might take the Last Jedi. Yeah, this movie sucks. This is always a hard topic for me because, like, my household growing up was a big Star Wars household. There was the conflict between Harry Potter and Star Wars. You know, Dad always wanted to watch Star Wars. Mom always wanted to watch Harry Potter. And I was down for whatever. So I have a lot of nostalgia love for these movies because we just watched them a lot and talked about them a lot. And it's great. I haven't seen it in a hot minute. I know it's very problematic, but every time I think about it, I just like get excited and I like the movie problematic in my head that I'm like, oh, fuck, I really shouldn't like this as much as I do. It's not a good movie. <laughs> it's got some problems, but there's just too much nostalgia to it. And I had Darth Maul's lightsaber as a toy, like the double. That was pretty sick. <laughs> I really like what the movie tries to do with like exploring the world of Star Wars and like giving different creatures and exploring different races and stuff like that. I don't think it does a great job, but I think it's cool, like the underwater world and you know, like just trying to dive deeper into what Star Wars could be, I think is a cool idea. Introduced to you know, a lot of new uh, species and stuff, especially, uh, you know, Jar Jar Binks and the Gungans. I mean, I can love Jar Jar. stuff there. So, yeah, got got a lot of new stuff. <laughs> yeah, a lot of credible stuff. We love going underwater in Naboo um, and, and hearing Jar Jar's voice. I also want to note, you know, we, we mentioned the Kira Knightley playing the fake Queen Amidala, but another one of her handmaidens was also played by a young Sofia Coppola. There's a little piece of trivia. Did you know that, Cody? Did, yeah. No, and... uh Really, actually, a, a pretty good cast on paper. So only George to blame, really. I just keep thinking of, like, weird characters in it. Boss Nass. You guys know that that one guy with the big orb? He's one of my mm-hmm. favorites. Newt Gunray. Uh, just classic characters all around. Oh, no, oh Sebulba. No, what's the... Um, Sebulba is a good one, too. One of the pod racers. I haven't brought up that. Oh, pod racing. What's the, what's the really racing one? Um all the gung, like not the gungans, all of the trade federation are like <laughs> yeah. these like yeah. intense Asian stereotypes. That's obviously, Newt Gunray. Jo- yeah, yeah, Newt Gunray. I, obviously, you know, Jar Jar is a little bit of like an early minstrel so type thing, which is not great. You've got 
the guy that sells Anakin into slavery. Yeah. What's yeah, he's essentially a very you know rough Watto is a very rough Watto. Jewish <laughs> Jewish stereotype. Um, so there's just a you know the, George he just pulled in all the stereotypes really, um, which is quite unfortunate. Yeah, I mean I think he was just he was more focused on you know visually. He wanted to create a real world. He wanted to yeah. like spread it out and make it seem diverse, but so he had to bring in the stereotypes because he, he created characters of of real life people and made them aliens but then it just when you look at it it's like this is not great george the real problem with this movie is george had far too much power and say over everything like he needed to bring people in and actually listen to them and so this could have been something because i really think the prequels could be so much more and so much better if like the dialogue was better or like if there just were some other voices in there to help flush out everything because I do think it's a good idea to expand more and understand the different people that live in this galaxy far far away so no Star Wars is like known for being incredible in terms of its dialogue and writing necessarily but I think it goes back to that thing he didn't have anybody to turn to because this was like an independent film that he had complete. There was no studio there. A studio obviously came in to help with distribution at the end, but there was no studio there that was like providing oversight, providing notes, giving him, you know, like George Lucas had final cut of this movie and it is very clear. Now he is an incredible visual filmmaker. The pod racing scene, like you mentioned with Sabalba that we haven't really talked about is incredible. The, the, just like that set piece, the set piece at the end, you know, early fight, like he's able to craft a world and build that out just in terms of like writing the actual story, getting, you know, a good child actor, stuff like that is, is where some misses happen. <laughs> oh, no more Jake Lloyd slander. But uh, yeah, I think George, like you said off the top, I mean, I think this one, especially, he was just looking to sell toys. Like, I think that's really the world expansion where that comes in. And uh, I mean, the plot is pretty much about like trade federations and tariffs and all this, you know, mumbo jumbo garbage that nobody really wants to see. But visually, it's cool. So yeah, I back. I mean, George, just getting somebody else to write your movie and it probably wouldn't have been terrible. But yeah. Speaking of something else, he's good at the lightsaber battles in these movies are like way, way better. Cool. Yeah. They're so much fun to watch and they look like actual fighting and like technique is there and everyone has a different fight style and it's really cool like how that came together and exploring all these people that should know how to use a lightsaber, how to wield it, um, how to use the force to their advantage in a way that Luke wouldn't in the initial trilogy because there wasn't a whole lot of teaching he had going on the way the current Jedis do. So I think it's cool some of that stuff that we get to like see and experience. The look of this film as a whole, it was shot on film still. The next movie was in, was like one of the first things entirely shot on digital. So like all of the weird CGI, all the plant, like George Lucas was figuring that stuff out for the very first time as a filmmaker and how to do that. And that's where a lot of mistakes happened. And a lot of like the planning of like the arena scene was basically just like, uh, we're gonna like give this off to visual effects people and they'll figure it out and they'll plot people in and like they'll just make it work and that was the story where this one there was a little bit more craft and a little bit of more foresight and he used a lot of those early tools that he had and you know on the the, the original trilogy and an integration of real stuff with cgi and, and doing that on film whereas when you get into the next movie just the technology was not there for digital filmmaking in the same way um so that's why i do think this one is um, at least visually better than the second one, not necessarily story-wise. 
<laughs> Maybe. I'd say they're about the same levels. Because, I mean, the next one, they got some weird CGI, like uh, animals they're fighting and stuff. I don't know. I feel the like... The thing is, this was shot a, a little bit more on location, whereas, like, yeah. when you move into the into the, the Attack of the Clones, everything is in a sound studio, on a stage. Not great. I, like, I all action set pieces. Obviously, they shot stuff in Spain with Anakin and Padme. The sand is coarse scene. That's yeah, the real. sand is coarse. We got that real. Thank God. I've been there. <laughs> that, that scene with the, that they filmed in Spain, I went to that place, and that was really cool, actually. That's dope. I mean, it's something about the, like, shooting and stuff. Like, Ewan McGregor's talked about it after filming Obi-Wan when he's on the a creature that's basically a horse or a camel or whatever but looks different in this world in obi-wan he was actually riding a camel so it was moving correctly and everything but in the prequels they weren't riding on any like live animals so they had to mimic those movements and you can visually see the differences and actually that no happened. one had done it at, up to that point in that way like it was entirely new so Gotta give a I think that's interesting though like bringing back someone that was in the prequels and having it done correctly way, yeah. now and have him discuss the differences and what he, he experienced i think that's a cool way to understanding what it was like filming those movies too absolutely um let, let's talk about the current state of star wars mina and i have been somewhat up to date with the newest season of the mandalorian uh, i haven't been a huge fan of it we're, we're a little bit behind but i think star wars is in a in a rough place uh cody what do you think yeah, you know, movie-wise, I think they don't even know which direction to go, really. I think The Mandalorian has been a successful show. I, I have not seen any of season three. I've heard um, some interesting things. I, I heard Lizzo shows up. I think Jack Black's there, too, right? So kind of just like a lot of both in name it. brand actors it seems they're bringing in. Which, you know, it is what it is. Like, I don't want to, you know, speak too lowly on it. Yeah, movie-wise, I think they're almost at a dead end. They don't know if they want to go with Ryan Johnson's trilogy. Well, they just announced three new movies, Cody. Did you right. see that? What I'm yeah. saying, like, they've kind of been thinking about it for 10 years, and they keep announcing new movies, and then eventually they just get canceled. Uh, but yeah, the whole Ray New new Order movie, that interests me. I think that'd be cool. I just don't know if they're actually ever going to do anything. So, but we'll see. Allegedly, that is the next project. We are, I mean, when's the it coming next... out? What's the release date? uh i think it's a 2024 maybe no 2025 I, yeah. I don't know it's supposed to be set 15 years after the events of the rise of skywalker which is a movie that i think is awful um and, and hopefully this is much more successful they are bringing in uh, a director uh shermine obad chinoy uh she worked on Miss Marvel, which we were both huge fans of. She was director of a couple of those episodes. And she's actually, I think, a two-time Oscar winner for a couple of short films across the 2010s. So, like, they're bringing in someone who just maybe hasn't had that opportunity to move up to the next level. Um, I'm excited to see what they do with it at the very least um, and hope that it actually happens. Um, the other two, uh, I'm, a, I'm a little up and down on the James Mangold uh, announcement it's supposed to be a movie about the early dawn like the very first jedi discovering the force all that obviously he's working with lucasfilm right now with indiana jones and the dial of destiny so there's a little bit of a relationship that's been pre-built there and clearly they appreciate his working style are proud of the work he's done on that movie which releases in a month and a half at this point so clearly they're impressed i like ford versus ferrari logan's a great movie 
maybe he can do something great with Star Wars. Um, and then the last one, Dave Filoni, the guy who's kind of been waiting for his chance, I would say. He was pan-picked by George Lucas to take over all the animation in the mid-2000s, you know, running, show-running the, the Clone Wars for many years, which became a show that became beloved and in some ways saved the prequels for a lot of people, myself included a little bit. Um, and then he's kind of been working with John Favreau to, you know, spearhead this new age of Disney and Star Wars television through the Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett and Star Wars Rebels and Bad Batch and all this different stuff. And he's going to get an opportunity to direct a movie that's going to connect all of this, the stuff they've been working on TV wise with Ahsoka and the Mandalorian and, you know, whatever else they do. Yeah, I mean, I like that. I mean. Seeing an actual Ahsoka, like Mando movie, throwing Boba Fett for kicks. I think that'd be fun. I don't know how, you know, they want to translate it from TV to movies or what they would even be doing in that kind of story. But I'm definitely here for an Ahsoka movie. I think Rosario Dawson is pretty much perfectly cast for that as well. So, I mean, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's the thing of like, when's it going to happen? Who's writing it? Because I mean, that's I feel like those are the important things, but yeah, like you said, with Mangold, too, I like most of his stuff. I'm not super excited for Dial of Destiny, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, might skip that one in theaters for me. But, uh, yeah, sure, I give him a chance. Why not? But I feel like, I mean, every time they throw, you know, a hot director who's going to direct the next movie, like Colin Trevorrow is directing Episode Nine, and then the movie, and then his, their next movie comes out, and it's dog shit. And it's like, oh, yeah, he's not doing it anymore. So we'll see. I, I have no idea what's actually going to happen. I don't know. I have no interest in pursuing any storyline with Ray anymore. Like I really hated those movies. I, I'm, I'm not interested in that. I am more. I am interested in the origins of the Jedi because I think that's something that's talked about a lot in the Star Wars fandom. And there's different lores behind it, and like getting your jet, your lightsaber, and your stone, and everything. And I think that's interesting, and I'm down to hear about that. But like, like. They keep pushing forward in the future with it, but they keep saying there's no more left. We're going to stop because it's a bad idea to have Jedi because there's always going to be Sith then and it's a problem. Da, 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 da. So I just feel like if they continue into this Ray storyline 15 years in the future, we're just going to get looped back into the same loop of there's good and there's bad and they're going to keep fighting until there's one left and then they'll continue that loop. And like I'm over that storyline. I think it's... It's been told every single time they do a trilogy for Star Wars and it's boring. I don't want to watch it again. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where like the James Mangold story interests me a little bit more. And it's something that Star Wars fans have been like clamoring for for years to go further back into the past. Look at the old Republic. You know, let's see the original Mandalorians in their heyday. Let's see the original Jedi. Like there's so many great stories that have been fleshed out in the greater expanded universe that's no longer considered canon that they can dive deep into and redevelop and change and and really do anything they want with um there's literally hundreds of thousands of years of history that they could you know get into something that star wars has done time and time again is this idea of like retconning and fixing and making up for their mistakes and the clone wars did a great job of doing that to that original prequel trilogy and to a certain extent there's certain things in rogue one that make a new hope a lot better so maybe this new race story can 
save a little bit of the mistakes that they make. I, I think that's what they want to do. They recognize that the rise of Skywalker was not the right ending to that story. And they messed up and a lot of people weren't happy. And I think they want to give Daisy Ridley a second chance. Hopefully they want to give John Boyega a second chance as well. And maybe some of those other people um, and, you know, leave us with a more positive taste in our mouths um, for this kind of overall storyline. I do like Daisy. I think she does a very good job of bringing that character to life and, and, portraying someone in the star wars world so i do i do want to give her another shot but i just don't trust that they're going to do it well i mean other than rogue one like in order for them to fix these things they've created tv shows to fix these problems i mean they gave they gave hayden his redemption in in obi-wan and they gave ahmed best his redemption as a jedi in the mandalorian case in point those are both tv shows rogue one's been the only movie that successfully fixed something and made you interested like solo i didn't think made me interested hey they showed the lando why he wanted to fuck that ship and i think that is exactly (laughs) what we need to know (laughs) i just i think think they're more successful in fixing things either in a cartoon tv show where they can just kind of do whatever the hell they want or a tv show in general than they are with movies because i just think they try and do too much in their two a half two two and a half hour span that you just get lost in the sauce and they don't know how to actually keep you engaged and not pissed the entire time. It's all John Favreau's fault, really. We, we can blame him, I think. He started the MCU. Favreau, I don't want to blame he's, him. He's ruining Star Wars now. <laughs> I, I blame Lucas. Georgie, Georgie Porgy. He probably wrote uh, The Last Jedi. I believe it. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move over and stay within the House of Mouse to The Lion King. Cody, why do you want to talk about The Lion King as your king slash queen film? For me, that is kind of the first thing that pops in my head. It's in the title. Lion King, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I think a really, really good movie, obviously. Kind of one of my childhood nostalgia uh, movies, but still in a rewatch today, like it's really, really good. I think the music, uh, you know, Disney-wise, is pretty elite. I mean, you got, you know, Scar's little chant going, which I feel like is a little ominous want to be king whatever that one's called and then of course just can't wait to be king is that what it is and i mean the circle i mean it goes on and on and on can you feel the love tonight i mean it's ridiculous how good this soundtrack is i feel like and it's really good characters like kind of the growth of simba you know having to rise up because uh and also james earl jones mufasa just such perfect casting in, in that voice role as well but then you, you kind of have like the seriousness of kind of like this really important story of, you know, Scar versus Mufasa and then what Simba, how does he kind of come into that? And then you have like the wonky sidekicks of uh, Timon and Pumbaa. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds, Disney, Disney wise, like actually good storytelling. It's basically just based off of Hamlet straight up versus, of course, the Disney kookiness of, you know, a fun Hakuna Matata, like an iconic fun song, which I feel like they do a lot, too, with, with their side characters. But yeah, for me, it's a, it really is one of the best animated movies of all time, I think. And um, there's only a select few who have been, like, nominated for Best Picture. Notably, Beauty of the Beast, I think, was the first one. Might have to go back and look at the year here, but I think it's a bit of a sham that this was not one of the ones nominated. Obviously, back in the days, there's only five Best Picture noms. Well, this was also 1994, which is one of the greatest movies. Oh, I mean, Pulp Fiction, Shawshank, Forrest okay. Gump. Well, fair enough. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll research the other two movies and we'll, you know, compare to those. But uh, yeah, w- one of my favorite animated movies of all time, for sure. Here we go. Forrest Gump, obviously, win. Four Weddings and a Funeral, Pulp Fiction, Quiz Show, Shawshank Redemption. 
or your uh, your 1994 nominees. Seen show. Replace that with Lion King. I don't know. You know, Robert Redford movie. You know, it's a classic. Rafe Fines. Directed by Robert Redford, Hollywood's, you know. Yeah, I, I guess we'll let it pass, but still an abomination. But, Obviously, uh, uh, Zemeckis <laughs> was uh, was cleaning up that year, him and his uh, Mr. Forrest. <laughs> True. Lion King's great on its own, but it also has a beautiful sequel in Lion King One and a Half. Yes. <laughs> Fucking banger. Like, that also is a great-ass movie that... Is basically just the retelling of Lion King, but from Timon and Pumbaa's vision. And I think that's, uh, love it. Yeah. It has a great song as well, addition in Lion King. Them, like, they're like digging tunneling song is awesome. Yes. Dig, 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 tunnel. Um, yeah. Or the fact that all of the bowing happens because Pumbaa let cats <laughs> just rip. Like, it's so kooky and it's so good. I love the Lion King. It's something I want to see on Broadway on the stage as well, because I've only ever heard good things about it. I saw Aladdin on stage, and that was a cool rendition of a classic Disney cartoon that everyone loves. So I, Lion King's got to be good. Yeah, I mean, The Lion King, it's the like 90s Disney animation was just like hit after hit after hit with like Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. And there's so many classics with so many great iconic voice roles. I mean, in this one, you've got James Earl Jones just absolutely killing it. And he was so good. They couldn't even replace him when they went and did the live action version of it or quote unquote live action version of it. But I mean, on top of that, you've got Whoopi Bulgurg and you've got Cheech of Cheech and Chong and Matthew Broderick playing Simba and Jeremy Iron. Like there's, there's so many great voice roles in the original Lion King. And you mentioned the music. It's notable to know that, I mean, it's Hans Zimmer doing the music, which, I mean, all the way back in the 90s, he's, he's the GOAT. I mean, we love Hans. Um, and then, you know, stuff like Can You Feel the Love Tonight, written by Elton John, you know, Oscar winning with that as well. Um, but Lion King one and a half uh, in the, the story tradition of Disney just taking the stories and, and remaking them, um, not coming up with any new stories. That's a, another great example of that. Cody, did you ever watch the the live action Lion King? I actually never did. Uh, <laughs> You're not missing anything. I believe a truly hotel edgy afford was Scar. Um it's I got a good of... cast. I mean, Beyonce is Nala. She doesn't do a lot. Donald Glover is the older Simba. I mean, Nala doesn't do a lot in Seth Rogen Lion King. Like <laughs> Nala comes yeah. in to tell Simba to get his, his head out of his ass and come back and fight for his kingdom. Like that's Nala's role. So there's not a lot for that character to do anyways. Voice wise, like Beyonce doesn't got much. She sings Can You Feel the Love Tonight with it, which like beautiful knowledge in general isn't given much because again women don't mean shit in early disney like that like that's a story for simba to come back and take over and redeem himself for leaving and letting fear run his life so it is very much simba's story uh, here's some other highlights of the uh, the Disney live action clash. Keegan Michael Key, of course, him and uh, Seth Rogen. There's in every movie together. Uh, Eric Andre plays Azizi. Billy Eichner's Timon. Seth Rogen, of course, Pumbaa. John Oliver plays Zazu. <laughs> is oh, yeah. the uh, other highlight for you. That, that was a good cast. I liked that actually. Yeah. Um, that movie notably made over a billion dollars. Uh, Beauty and the Beast over a billion dollars. Aladdin over a billion dollars. All I'm talking about the live action remakes. Will the Little Mermaid live action remake make over a billion dollars, Cody? What do you think? I would think so. Um, the trailer did play before Super Mario Brothers, and 
there were some murmuring and murmurings in the crowd be like ooh the little mermaid <laughs> so i think people are i guess excited for my theater probably not something i'll see uh melissa mccarthy is also kind of a sketchy casting i think i think you could have gone pretty much anybody there lizzo why why do you think that's a sketchy casting i don't know i feel like she doesn't really sing like i mean i would have loved to see lizzo and also melissa mccarthy is just melissa mccarthy for me i don't know her too well but she looks pretty good i mean her her singing voice just in the the trailer looks like she's going to be a powerhouse so the whole live action animals will be weird but it's going to make a crap ton of money what do you think of aquafina as scuttle the the bird i didn't know that i actually like aquafina um so i back it yeah that's the thing with like these live action animals even in that lion king movie like can you even tell half the time who these people are because it's it's literally just a bird like just sitting there so i don't know well they talk also i I won't go see it so i don't care (laughs) Uh, i I do gotta shout out jacob tremblay plays flounder notable uh, a child actor of room fame and then david diggs of hamilton is is playing sebastian which i mean you got to get the sebastian casting right i like that actually i think it's a pretty solid cast as far as what they're doing to portray each of these characters like i think they're all going to be really good the only gripe i've had this entire time is that they're not making Ariel's hair as red as it gotta be. Like, she's got this bright and unnatural red hair. And <laughs> this bitch just has, nat- like, what would be naturally red hair for her skin tone and everything. And I'm like, that. no, sorry. Ariel's hair is just not natural in general. No one comes out with that red of hair. Like, it's just wrong. It is, it is interesting, like, when you consider, like, the choices they make in, like, moving something into live action, you know, as opposed to a cartoon. And it's like... You still have talking fish and like <laughs> shit like that that isn't real. And she is a mermaid, a mermaid. So it's like literally any other. Like it, it, they could have, obviously, like I think the, the hairstyle choice is a good, you know, move. Yeah. But they could have definitely like made it redder if they wanted to. But, you know, probably in terms of like the shitty water photography they're dealing with, it would probably would have been a whole thing for them to try. And, and you know, it, it already looks bad enough. <laughs> I don't want to hear the complaints. They're not James Cameron. They can't they can't film underwater. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Honestly though, what I'm looking forward to the most with that movie is the dog that they get to play the dog, like Prince Eric's dog in it that comes up and is like licking his face. That is a big shaggy dog. And I just am excited to see a big shaggy dog. Like I hope he's there because he's like so adorable in cartoon form. So like it'll be adorable in live action form. Hopefully that doesn't disappoint you. Uh, probably will. If there's no dog, we might have to walk out of the theater. I haven't seen it in the trailer. It's probably going to not be there. I'm going to walk out. Uh, stay tuned for the Ratatouille episode. coming. I love Ooh. animation. I'll say that now before That's the Ratatouille good. episode. <laughs> God, now I have to go watch The Lion King, Cody. That's I know. Such a good- movie like that's something i love about the 90s disney movies is i always want to watch them like they're so good and i don't feel bad they're, they're all pretty slim which is nice i mean what yeah. what's the runtime on the the original lion king here i'd say and it's 100 minutes tops 128 yeah i mean that's that's breezy and it doesn't even feel long you're just enjoying it the whole time and it's it's so good i love it yeah just naming off those songs made me want to pop it in right now but yeah. right yeah i want to watch the montage of simba getting older while they're singing hakuna matata like yes i actually really want to watch the lion king one and a half now that you brought it up but <laughs> i love that <laughs> it's so good and then they made lion king 2 which is not good but like 
They should have just stopped at one and a half. Well, if you want to go watch those great films, as well as Star Wars The Phantom Menace, you can head over to uh, Disney Plus, <laughs> another classic ad. Moving over to a different corporate streamer, let's talk about the Netflix-produced film, The King. Probably a less-seen one. Cody, are, are you familiar with The King, Mina's Choice here? I'm familiar with it. Uh, I believe Robert Pattinson is in it as well, no? He is. Yeah. Mina, Mina, take it away. Tell us about The King. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it once. I picked it mostly because it was one of the lists that I had seen um, when I Googled movies with kings and queens. And I remember really liking it, but I also remember Corbin being like, we're watching The King. Heads up, Rob Pat is in it. You're not going to be happy. And I was not happy. So I'm not a huge fan of Robert Pattinson. <laughs> but I did think this role made me like him a little bit more. This role and then Tenant, because I think I really got, like, he was a good actor in both of these films. And so I gave him more benefit of the doubt than prior experiences I had with him. But this movie, I feel like, is a good combination of a lot of things I'm interested in. I am very interested in history, especially like royal history where kings are just fighting each other for, you know, field of rule and whatnot, especially in this age that this movie takes place in. I think it's very interesting, the level of like narcissism and like desire to just never lose their power and the number of lives that they don't care die in order to keep their power. I think it's an interesting story to tell. And I think all the acting in this movie is really good. Um, and I love Timothy Chalamet. I think he did a really great job playing some spoiled prince to become a king. So I think Corbin probably has more to say because he probably actually remembers the movie a little bit better than me. But <laughs> it's a solid movie. I will say that I actually did a like whole project on this movie uh, oh, for wow. one of my classes in college. Um, I took a mid middle ages on film class. Uh, I think my second semester of my sophomore year um, when we got sent home for COVID. So I had to do like a whole report on a, just a movie that I got to choose that was set during like the middle ages. And I, I went for the King. So I, I actually went and pulled this up to look at my <laughs> little report I did, but um, the, the movie follows Timothy Chalamet's character who plays like this young Prince Hal, his dad dies. So he has to ascend to the throne and become Henry V. And it's kind of about him going to head to head with Robert Pattinson. It's really interesting because Robert Pattinson plays the Dauphin of France, which is basically like the heir to the throne in France. He's, he's like the Prince of France. Robert Pattinson, notably English actor, playing this French character, doing like a French accent. Timothy Chalamet, French actor playing this English king, which I, I think is a funny thing to do in a movie. Irony at its best, I think, kind of mixing and max, mix, I can't talk, mixing and matching uh, accents. It's really fun. But uh, I mean, yeah, those two alone, I, I think this was kind of the start of uh, the Pattinson renaissance a bit. I don't know where timeline it fits into all of this, but kind of good time. And then Tenet came out a little bit after, and then obviously forming into uh, the Batman but uh, I think he's good in this. And I think Chalamet and him um, especially are the standouts in this movie. I'm not a big like historical drama period piece kind of guy. But uh, this I, I feel like this movie was interesting enough to kind of pull me in with that. And like you do know some of the characters, even idiots like me, know who like Henry V and all this stuff are. So it's kind of interesting in that aspect as well. But yeah, I think an underrated flick, maybe lost in the sauce a little bit just because it is a Netflix release. But yeah, for, for Chalamet, I would say it's, it's, it's one of his better performances, I would say, yeah. Definitely a type of movie, I or at least, like, 
genre that I watch a lot of. Uh, I've watched Rain, which is like a dramatized historical fiction movie about Queen Mary of Scots. That's a little more romancy, right? Yeah, but there's still like the drama of because she's the Queen of Scots that um, Queen Elizabeth of England historically heads because she also has a claim to the throne and is a problem for Queen Elizabeth. So like the whole move, like the whole series is people constantly trying to kill Mary Queen of Scots because she's a problem for every other person wanting to be on the throne. And that's kind of like what this movie is. Like people are problems for others to keep their throne. And so it's just constantly this strife of trying to poison them, starting a war, like sending someone to just kill them, you know, like mercenaries and assassins were big parts of this. And I think it's really interesting how the movie goes between Rob Pat and Timothy Chalamet and shows them trying to figure, both of them trying to figure out what to do next to beat the other. I think, I think it does a really good job and it's very well shot, I think. I really enjoyed it. Cause also like, I think a more fun war movie, a lot of our war movies is just guns. And you know, like that's, that's our history now that people watch. It's like a lot of gunfighting, a lot of ships, a lot of planes. And this is like, medieval sword battle like that's always a little bit more interesting to watch like i've i've said this like i'm not a fantasy fan and like anything that's medieval is kind of fantasy adjacent because fantasy is often just like fantastical versions of of knights and you know like our true history right our true middle ages um but the cool thing is like the final battle in this isn't just like two like warring knights are gonna go at each it's there's a strategic thinking they they because there's a hill with mud and they you know plan the direction they're going to attack from and it's just a really cool played out you know final fight scene i also really just enjoy the supporting cast of this as well joel edgerton is kind of like the right hand man to timothy chalamet's character he plays this um falstaff which is a character that originated from the shakespeare versions of the henry the fifth and all those different chronicles he's you know pops up in a lot of different ones um so i think he's really great Dean Charles Chapman, who's one of like the two leads of 1917, appears in this movie in kind of a smaller role. Lily Rose Depp just shows up at the end as like the princess of France, I think, that Timmy marries in the end, because that's how these things all end up ending. It's just like, oh, let's just all get married and inbreed and everything will be fine and our, our lands will be shared. A um, lot of history, a lot of death, a lot of grossness in uh, medieval times. It's cool. It's not like a history we learn about in school because we historically don't give a shit about those countries like we're like America so I think it's kind of cool to like watch stuff that's like this matters to other countries they learn about this stuff and we do if we seek it out yeah you know they went they conquered and then they had it for 20 years and then they went and conquered the other you know it's just a bunch of white people fighting and killing each other for for no reason in, in the early days of Europe so I'll watch that. it <laughs> any other uh, final thoughts on the king Timothy Chalamet Dune 2 coming out this year are we freaking hype guys what about Wonka? That's true. Both on my that's team. That's what I'm hyped for. I think that's a fantastic cast for Wonka. I really like that. Willy Wonka versus Aquaman going head to head the weekend of Christmas. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Which one do you guys think is going to do better? Aquaman will make more money, I think. I, I kind of like Willy Wonka's odds. If it's a good trailer, I think people will go see it. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the age of IP. Let's let's see how much uh, depths Wonka made. That's true. That that probably will this bring it down. This cast kind of feels like a little bit more of a Johnny Depp Wonka than a like. It feels like a good mixture of the Charlie Chuck Ferret. If the Johnny Depp Wonka never came out, I think this one would probably make a lot of money. 
Just because of that nostalgia factor. Well, that movie made $475 million in the year 2005. Yeah, but it was really bad. So. Exactly. It was bad, and it made almost half a billion dollars. Yeah, but that's how good the first one is. Like, it has that nostalgia. I factor. don't know, Cody. I have the nostalgia of loving the Johnny Depp one. Also, Johnny like, Depp was, like, the most marketable person ever in 2005. Yeah, but he looked like an idiot. Problematic now, looking back, but it's fine. I think... We all have the ability to look at these movies and be like, this is a bad movie. But like when we watched it as kids, like all of my friends loved the Johnny Depp vlog, but they thought it was super fun and weird. Like, I feel like there's a good enough nostalgia that we all want to go see Wonka because also we love Timmy Chalamet. And there's like the parent nostalgia of the original still. They're still going to take their kids to go see this. I think it's I think it's going to be fine. That's true. Almost double down nostalgia in a sense. I like that. There you go. Uh, double down. <laughs> yeah, the movie's got off. God, that man is not even another platform to defend himself. <laughs> Let's uh, take a quick break and we'll be back with our next card. Hi, <laughs> hi. Are you joking? Give me that now. It. It's got um, Cousin Greg. He's in it. He plays a human um, glow stick. <laughs> he plays a human glow stick. Wait, you haven't, have you not seen Sky High either, Cody? I haven't seen it. No. Oh my God. It is a high school for kids. Um, it's got fucking Kurt Russell. Children. Can you shut the fuck up? I'm trying to tell them what it is. <laughs> it's it's a, a high school for kids that are children of superheroes. And all of them also have superpowers and stuff like that. The main guy hasn't gotten his powers yet. And his parents are like the two most famous superheroes or whatever. So he's mm. like so sad but yeah cousin greg's in it and he can glow the ice girl from the flash is in it the the cw flash cody oh yeah she's like the love interest nice you should watch it cody it's pretty solid or we'll do a pod episode over it <laughs> cousin greg's in it yeah mary elizabeth winstead too mm, nice i like her solid movie she's in ahsoka yeah she's like green or something i know everybody was excited to see her or whatever because they're all like the rebels characters oh hera is her name yeah the goddess of marriage no not that threw her kid down mount olympus and then he got all disfigured they banished him to the forge sorry that was nerdy we get it you've read percy jackson you know about Hephaestus. <laughs> jesus christ i didn't get that from percy jackson you dickhead i knew that before i read those prove it <laughs> This is staying in. And we're back now. And we're going to draw an actor card. And then we'll take a deep dive into their filmography. We'll talk about them a little bit generally. And then pick three specific movies of theirs. Nicolas Cage. Oh, wow. What a classic. Shout out to his new movie, Renfield, baby. Shout out, Renfield. <laughs> I mean, literally, we could be recording this at any time. And you could probably say shout out to his new movie. Because he's got a, a new picture coming out about every four or five months. If, I mean, let's let's just go hop over to his IMDb real quick, and uh, I'll just take a dive and, and pick our Nick Cage movie. I mean, he's he's the man who doesn't say no. He he either has the worst agent or in Hollywood, or the best agent in Hollywood. Depends how you think about it. But yeah, I mean, it, it's ridiculous. Also, just off the bat, I mean, National Treasure. Anybody ever seen that movie? Go, go listen to our, go listen to our episode on it. Yeah. Go listen to that episode. It's a good one. Season two flick. Cody, are you like remotely interested in Renfield? What are your take? What's your take on that? I actually am. I, I think it looks pretty. I mean, Nicholas Holt, uh, if you listen to our Days of Future Past episode, maybe Awful not. The best. Yeah, true, true. Maybe, I'm not a massive fan of his, but that movie does look pretty good. I mean, Nicholas Cage is Dracula. I mean, you, you convinced me already. So I think I, that I is what I kind of feel about. like he was born to play Dracula. He's so perfect. weird. I feel like it was kind of perfect. 
yeah, that's great casting, I think. His agent finally helps him out. And I mean, his most recent stuff too, that one where he had with Pedro Pascal, where he's playing himself, like that's really good. Uh, I think agent work as well, casting there. So more recently, he's he's kind of had a little bit uh, of an upswing, I would say. I mean, on my side of TikTok, I see that clip of him and Pedro Pascal like every fucking day. So like yeah. he's getting his face out there. <laughs> <laughs> if you meme yourself, I mean, you're just, you're making more money, so Smart move all all the way around. I'd say. I think it's really interesting to kind of look at how that happened for a period of time. Like you said, Cody, he didn't say no to any project. Literally, like he was in everything, and it. He's talked about it. He was in some financial trouble. He had some, I think, medical bills of his mother, maybe that he was kind of having to deal with and pay off. He is also notably of the uh, Coppola family. He is Nicholas Cage Coppola is his actual name. So throwing it back to Sophia there. Um, I believe he is her uncle or he like he's the nephew of francis ford coppola i think technically so maybe he's her cousin but yeah he you know had some financial trouble so he was just saying yes to every project but in 2021 and 2022 you have the movie pig which he received a ton of critical praise for there was maybe some thoughts that he was going to get another oscar nomination for uh it obviously didn't happen but i think that played a little bit of a role and then you get like the self-referentiality of the unbearable weight of massive talent coming in a time where he can do interviews and he can talk about some of the struggles and why he was doing some of those shitty movies and he can also play off of that and work with pedro pascal who's a huge star at the time and continues to be now. Um, and then you have a, a movie like Rinfield kind of using that star power. But on top of that, he was in like six other movies in the last two years, Willie's Wonderland, where he is basically doing like a five nights at Freddy's ripoff, where he does not speak a line of dialogue through the entire film, despite being the lead actor. I mean, Nicolas Cage is not afraid to do anything at any point. He's done action movies. He's been in face off and con air. He's done voice work with Spider-Man Noir and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. He's starred in a Disney blockbuster with National Treasure um, and National Treasure 2. And then, of course, his big fall, I think, was with The uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice in 2010 because that was just critically and commercially a huge flop for Disney. And that's kind of, I think, why National Treasure 3 never happened um, and, and why... And they you know, killed him off for the TV show? And why what the, the 2010s were, were so rough. I mean, Kick-Ass is a fun role, of course, as well, in 2010. Sorcerer's Apprentice, really a flop? Yeah. My taste, I just feel like gets called out when I was well, here as Bond. No, it's not. Because y'all would be like, this movie's a huge flop. I'm like, fuck. But it really was like the budget movie. was way too high and it didn't make <laughs> enough money. I think it was more of a bomb than... It was a $150 million budget. Yeah. Like, think about that. That movie was a hundred and fifty. And it stars Jay Baruchel and Nick Cage. That movie was a hundred and... Oh, my Jesus. And Alfred okay. Molina. Yeah, that's a problematic then, because that's a way... If that's what they made with that budget... Yeah, I mean, that, that was... I mean, that was coming off two National Treasure movies that made $459 million and $347 million, respectively. So, like... You know, Disney was was all in on the cage stir and you know <laughs> how the knock the third fucking movie, dude. That is such bullshit. Jesus, he's seriously so many movies every year. He's oh been in like a hundred and he has hundred and seven credits and five of Oh upcoming. my god, I forgot about the crudes. Shit, that's a good movie. The Wicker Man. <laughs> G Force, that's a classic. Oh my god, Ghost Rider. Bring him back. Girl. He did too. Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. Yeah, that one was pretty good. The first one I don't think was that bad. Uh, good, but it's not that bad. It's got a 35 like meta score, 5.3 on IMDb. I think it's got Eva Mendes in it. 
I'm a fan. <laughs> Ghost Rider has a 27% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's crazy. I thought the first one would be higher. Cody, what movie do you want to talk about of Nicolas Cage's? You go first. I'll, I'll kick us off. I believe I have the, uh, well, maybe not actually, one of the earliest iterations of, of our picks. But uh, I was going in between The Rock and Face Off. The Rock is actually probably one of the better action movies of all time. But uh, Face Off would probably be more fun to talk about. So that'll be my pick. Obviously, paired alongside him, the iconic John Travolta. We got to check. We're going to do all the picks first. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Face Off. Check it. Mina, what's your pick? I'm going to go for Snowden. Oh, I, I did see that and I, I did consider it. It'll be a fun one to talk about. I honestly just didn't. I saw he was in the movie and I still couldn't tell you what role he played. So you'll have to let me know. I don't remember. The movie that I uh, want to talk about is Raising Arizona, which I actually do think is the uh, earliest one going back to the uh, 80s, early Coen Brothers action. Uh, but let's start with Face Off, Cody, because you you seem very eager to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, as I mentioned, the aforementioned uh, John Travolta's in the movie, just, you know, Hollywood legend. But I just really, really think this is probably the dumbest movie that either of these guys have ever done. I mean, it's literally taking their faces off <laughs> and putting it on each other's bodies. Which, of course, science a lot fiction at its finest. Yeah, it, it's very much fiction and a little bit science. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really make any sense. I mean, they're not the same size proportionally or height wise. So when they, you know, supposedly swap their faces, it doesn't really make sense because it still looks like John Travolta and Nicolas Cage with their normal faces on. And then it has the weird duality of acting of like they have to act like each other. So are they doing like an impression of each other or is it like kind of a funny thing or is it dead serious? Who knows? But I believe it's a John Woo uh, direction movie. Could be wrong on that. So there's yes, flying, there's flying doves everywhere in the background, which I love. Shout out uh, Mission Impossible Two. If you haven't seen that movie, and then yeah, the, the climactic scene is like them on a big boat chase. It's like a one v one on this lake, and they just have speed boats and they're just shooting at each other. And then uh, somehow they get to shore, and then I think it's it's somebody. It uh, it's too confusing. It's somebody's wife who shows up. And then it's a whole face off between that too, but a face yeah, off pun intended, but uh, yeah, wild movie really, really of its time. I would say a classic nineties flick and uh, one I'd recommend if, if you just want to, you know, have a good time and, and watch a Nick Cage performance. Mina, what about you? What are your thoughts? Have you seen it? Never heard of this movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Finding out about face off for the first time. That's, that's lovely. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to, we'll talk Travolta. I mean, I like the idea of Nick Cage and Travolta together. I think that's a fun pairing that I would have never put together in my brain. So I'll have to check it out because it sounds interesting. I like Cody's synopsis. <laughs> it's something. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's interesting, but it, it's something, yeah. When it comes to, I mean, the late 90s, that that pairing especially works a lot better than, than maybe now today um, or, or even the 2000s. I also have not seen Face Off, obviously, like I'm uh, familiar with the movie. Um, but whenever I, you know, haven't seen it, I want to dive deep. I want to see who made it. So, you know, you mentioned John Woo's the director. I, I wanted to take a look a little bit at the, the writers. And, you know, the first name that popped off the page for me is a man named Mike Werb. Are, are you familiar with his work? Mike Werb? Who's that? I, I'm not familiar either, but uh, I clicked on his IMDb page and it turns out that he did the story for the 2006 Curious George animated film. So uh, uh, great work from him. Obviously, Will Ferrell playing yeah, uh, Will the Ferrell. man in the, the yellow hat, Ted. Um, he also did the screenplay for The Mask, uh, Jim Carrey classic. And um, 
Really not, not a whole lot else of note. Laura Craft Tomb Raider story, the 2001 version. Um, also, though, the other writer, also a Mike, Michael Cullery, he uh, has done a, some other stuff with our buddy Mike Werb, Tomb Raider story as well. Firehouse Dog, same thing. I, I mean, I don't know. What's up with these dudes? They have, they're writers on random projects in the 90s are you can you can go down a rabbit hole of shitty movies pretty quickly i mean shout out curious jord good soundtrack i don't know if you guys know the song upside jack Down. johnson motherfucker <laughs> i actually really like that song i'm not gonna lie but yeah the writing uh in this movie not the best but uh you know they have some fun twists and turns here and there but yeah maybe not the best career from the two mics but they did their best and Danny Masterson is in this movie. Problematic. <laughs> Nicholas K. That, that is true. Cody loves that 70s show I and, and Danny Masterson's work. It's so sad. <laughs> Apparently, Nicholas Cage and John Travolta spent a whole two weeks together before filming to learn how to play each other. Another movie that kind of has to do this similar thing is uh, Looper, which is a great one where, where Joseph Gordon-Levitt is trying to kind of do a Bruce Willis impression. Uh, I wouldn't say it's extremely effective, but, you know, he's trying. Freaky Friday is a movie like that, where Jamie Lee Curtis is playing Lindsay Lohan. Like, that's that's a thing that happens a lot. I mean, at, at one point, there's, a there's like, a rom-com with, uh, fuck, I can't remember their names now. Jason Bateman but... and Sudeikis, right? Yes, thank you. Jason Bateman, which it has the break to up? be. Uh... The change-up? No, the switch. No, the change-up is what it's called. The change-up. That was close. Whatever. Yeah, but so, like, they're, they're being each other. Like that's that's not a, I mean it may have been new at this point, but it's now been done a shit ton of times. It's pretty common. Well, that's I, true. But have they ever tried to kill each other? <laughs> I think, I think that, Friday, that's what happens in Freaky Friday. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> well, you got me. There. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the, the change up real quick. Uh, I have seen well, that movie. What do you guys think? I uh, I scored it on Letterbox. Like half a star. One and a half. Hate those guys. Two so, stars. Come on, guys. Give me some credit. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds, Jason Bateman. Uh, the amount that fun. you bitch about Ryan Reynolds just playing Ryan Reynolds, like, I don't trust that you rank any of his movies highly anymore. This is a David Dobkin directed classic. Yeah, Olivia Wilde. Director of also Wedding Crashers. The act. Leslie Mann. Thank you. She's in it. She's great. I love her. My favorite role of hers has got to be This is 40. She's great in that movie. Yeah, I mean, that's a classic. She's the Judd Apatow's uh, wife, correct? So that you yes. know, he basically so directed while he's Paul directing, Rudd. Yeah. He's directing Paul Rudd to replace him as a father because it's both of their daughters. is are the daughters in the role. Euphor- Euphoria star, Mod. It's awful being Jason Bateman. It's awful being married. It's essentially the joke of that movie, which, Pretty you much. know, Cody. classic 2010s comedy. I want to take it back, though, to your point, Corbett, of John Travolta and Nick Cage spending two weeks together to try and figure out who they were. Cody, since you're the only one of, out of the three of us that's seen this movie, do you mm-hmm. think that translates? Do you think that they do a good job trying to be the other? I don't know. I would say they did a good job, but I think they tried, especially I think Travolta really tries to do kind of some weird Nick Cage things. Like uh, he says in the mirror, I think one time he's like, woo wee, I'm good looking or something like that. Uh, I don't know if that's verbatim, but yeah, you know, they definitely try. I would say it's not good, but you know, A for effort. I think that's impressive. Like yeah. that doesn't happen a lot with movies. Don't people just kind of show up sometimes and you, you got to hope it works. 
I'd call it a cinematic achievement. I'm being completely honest. (laughs) Well, this is the thing. Like, Nick Cage, for as much shit as we give him and for the shitty projects he's in, like, he is an Oscar-winning actor. He's two-time nominated. Like, he has some chops, and he is capable of doing some some good work. Um, At other times, it's a little bit over-exaggerated, I think, is is way for you fall. You know, the extreme yelling and screaming of, of stuff like the Wicker Man that's been memed so many times, um, I think, is where he gets a little bit into <laughs> the weeds. I think it's kind of impressive, though, that, like, he can have so many movies that have come out and be an Oscar winner. That's range, baby. <laughs> and have some, and be somebody that you're still down to see a movie when you see that he's in it. It doesn't turn you away, even though he's got some cringeworthy performances. I think that speaks a lot to his talent, that you still want to go see a movie that has him in it. Nick Cage has a movie for every type of person. We can say that for sure. For I, I do just want to share one last little piece of trivia about Face Off. John Woo was re- instructed by the studio to take the slash, the face slash off out of the title, but he kept it in. You want to know why? why? So people didn't think it was a hockey movie was his reasoning. So respect to him and uh, respect to hockey. I could see Nick Cage starring in a hockey movie. So yeah, probably smart. He would look great on skates and missing a tooth. Let's move over to uh, Snowden. What what role does Nick Cage play in Snowden? <laughs> he plays Hank Forrester, which is not a real person in the story, but is based off of um another mm. whistleblower named William Binney um who like was a fan of Snowden I honestly didn't remember that he was in it I've seen this movie a couple times and could not have told you he was in it so I had to double check that he was actually in it. I thought maybe Google was lying to me I really like Snowden I think it's a fun movie um I'm gonna go back and watch it to really analyze Nick Cage's role in it though yeah I I just googled it and now that I'm looking at the picture he plays like the guy who's kind of training him when he first enters into the fbi and he goes to his his training facility and he's kind of like that mentor role that like you said he ends up being a little bit of a whistleblower himself where he kind of encourages snowden to head in that direction or at least identify a lot of the problems and and things um snowden i i do enjoy as a movie i I believe it's a oliver stone directed film um it's kind of right up in his wheelhouse joseph gordon levitt that was a little bit of his his star moment there Right, you know, following The Dark Knight Rises, which is uh, a classic uh, cat film. Great episode. But yeah, Snowden, I, I, I don't know. I think I only saw it once, but I, I thought it was decent. I like the uh, the Rubik's Cube moment. He kind of, he really fakes out the... He hides the thing and then he like tosses it. He's like, hey, you know, check it out. I really like that. And I think Clip the of act- the week. Yeah, exactly. Clip of the week. Clip it. Yeah. Hey, hey. You ever play with one of these? Yeah, when I was a kid. Yeah. Just try it. It's hard. cross actually and then you do the corners oh, oh man but i love these things <laughs> hey have a good weekend man you too buddy all right but uh i think joseph gordon levitt 
kind of really does he tries at least to disappear into kind of the snowden type role because i don't know if it's necessarily on brand for you know his normal shtick so kind of going out on a limb there i, I do like and i mean it is a, a culturally you know historically significant film i would say too so biopic wise like you said right up oliver stone's wheelhouse and uh, i thought it was you know effective in, in what it was trying to do and uh yeah joseph gordon levitt i thought was pretty good i if i'm being honest i don't remember nick cage too much in the movie now that you say he he was the kind of the his mentor a bit uh that does bring that up in my head a little bit but weed ties <laughs> cardigan that action yeah, for that. <laughs> but uh, he probably didn't do too many Nick Cageisms in this movie, which um, I think does show he, he's a good actor. He can kind of be in any movie you really want him to be in. This movie kind of is becoming topical again right now, especially with all of the TikTok issues and people stealing our da- information and whatnot. Like our government can be mad at it; they're doing it to us from already. Like it's it's happening. So it's an, it's an interesting topic to bring up right now, just with that whole thing because Stoughton still isn't back here he like is still in hiding so it's something that I think we'll continue to see become a, a cyclical topical discussion and movie that people should continue to watch and understand what's going on in our government and the role they play with our technology as we record right now <laughs> they're listening I can't speak to like Edward Snowden as like a real person in in how great of a guy he necessarily is, but like he did, did expose a lot of wrongdoing that was being done by our government. And for that, I think, you know, I, I think, you know, despite the fact that he is still not allowed in this country and is considered, you know, committing an act of treason. Like I think what he did was hundred percent, right. I think this movie presents that point of view as well. And, and I would agree with it. Um, if you want to learn more about kind of the true story there, there's a great documentary citizen Four, which this movie is like almost following like the people that make that documentary to a certain extent at certain points, um, supporting role, Shailene Woodley, you know, the 2016 was kind of her moment as well. You had the divergent series and the fault in our stars. She's definitely kind of fallen off in terms of fame in the last couple of years. Um, I don't know about any attachments to Aaron Rodgers um, and her interest in crystals <laughs> having anything to do with any of that. But... She's a strong anti-vaxxer too. <laughs> she's, um, she's a crystal mommy as some would describe her. I wouldn't. I mean, Zachary Quinto's in it. Yeah. Heroes boy. Where has Zachary Quinto got Eastwood, Timothy Oliphant. Like it's a pretty solid cast of individuals. Definitely, definitely. Zachary Quinto, do you, do you like him as Spock, Cody? Are you a fan of that? Of course, yeah. I mean, not to we, step on any Star Trek episode stuff. When, yeah, when we review Star Trek or nine, you'll hear my full thoughts. But I think he is a good Spock, you know, pays tribute to the GOAT, Leonard Nimoy, and, you know, still makes it his own thing. But yeah, I think, I mean, this cast, the more and more you keep bringing up these names, I think the better it gets, other than Shailene Woodley. But I feel like Quinto is not even working too much these days. So this was like peak Quinto as well. I feel like we say that, you know, like actors, they're not working right now. And then you like look into what they're doing and they're doing a shit ton of stuff. It's just like not acting, which is, I think is always kind of fun seeing how they transition out of being on screen, but still are around. Some of them, I'm not saying Quinto is because I have no idea what the fuck he's doing, but I feel like that happens a lot. In a bunch of other stuff. You are right. I mean, even like, Corbin, when we were talking about Fastbender, like, oh, he hasn't done shit for five years and he's making like three movies this year. So it's all kind of like, oh, you're working with the right people at the right time. 
Quinto's always like a producer type thing, and he's always trying to do stuff like that. I feel he's gone more behind the camera, and he's he's he did a bunch of TV before, obviously with Heroes. He always has like the new pilot Good coming show. out on NBC for some reason. So yeah, he's still around, I think a little bit. Melissa Leo plays Lloyd Portress, who in the movie, who is a real life documentarian. Um, and she's the person who directed that Citizen Four documentary that I was talking about. But also notably, she was Oscar nominated for All the Beauty and the Bloodshed this past year. She was the director of that film. So she's someone who's, you know, remained in the conversation and is, you know, a well-known documentary filmmaker. So it's kind of cool that they highlight that um, in the movie. That's really cool. I did not know that. That's one of my favorite parts of the movie is when you get to that point of him working to try and out all of this and working with the documentarians and whatnot, but still trying to keep his location hidden so he doesn't get arrested and you know killed because he's committing treason like i i think it's it's really interesting and it's a part of making that choice that you wouldn't necessarily think of on a day-to-day basis like everyone shares so much now it's kind of interesting to think that like making that choice to share that put his entire life at risk he's like he'll never be allowed to come back here and like his entire livelihood and was, you know, he had to give that up. And, you know, he made that decision because he clearly saw that there was wrongdoing being done and he felt the need um, to expose that information. There's a great John Oliver interview with Edward Snowden where he like went to Russia in, in 2016 uh, to interview him. So go check that out if you if you want to know more about Snowden and, and government surveillance. That's tough. It's got to be in Russia. Like I, right now, I really would not want to be in Russia. Like I yeah, he's been a Russian citizen since 2022 officially. So, um, you know, he, he still remained a figure and has a lot of opinions about things um, for sure. Also As that. do all white men. We should definitely be concerned about uh, surveillance in, in the age of in, information. Let's move over to our uh, last Nick Cage flick, a movie called Raising Arizona, uh, which Mina and I actually went and saw in a theater a couple weeks ago. Shout out the, the Nighthawk in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Uh, we went to a little brunch screening of it, but this movie uh, stars Nick Cage and Holly Hunter, and they both look just like so freaking young. Obviously, this is 1987, but it, it is crazy to kind of see those two. Um, Holly Hunter sounds the exact same though, uh, but she's really putting on a she's putting on a little bit of an extremer accent, but that's still that like Mrs. Incredible voice is coming through. Cody, are you familiar with it at all? Yeah, I have seen it, but it's been a while. Yeah, so. Uh, it's directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Technically, it's only credited to Joel Cohen because of you know DGA roles. They couldn't both get on there, um, but they basically co-directed, co-wrote it. Holly Hunter and Nick Cage are this like childless couple, and they see this ad of, or they see this thing in the paper where this family has quintuplets. So they have all these babies, and they're just like, oh, well, let's go take one of those for ourselves because they have way more than they need. Um, and then just all this craziness ensues. It's just an extremely fun Nick Cage person where him and Holly Hunter are basically playing like the American Southwest trailer trash to a certain extent. Um, he's got an incredible mustache, incredible floral shirt, um, and also just a fun Francis McDormand supporting performance and John Goodman as well. So uh, a lot of early Cohen collaborators there. He's kind of got like the Ace Ventura look going before Ace Ventura came out, you know, like True. he is what Ace Ventura was based off of, like look wise, if you think about it, just, it's kind of fun. 
honestly, Nick Cage in this movie is what threw me off a lot more than Holly Hunter. Like, she still, like, looks basically the same. She just has some, like, age lines, and she looks great. But Nick Cage looks vastly different. Like, he's got more weight on him. He looks, like, so thin. I was like, is he ill? <laughs> when I first saw him come on, I was like, oh, my God. It is a definitely a fun movie. There's just so many cool things in the direction of the movie. There's this, like biker character that's kind of like searching for the the baby and trying to hunt it down and just all the stuff the coen brothers do with the following of the bike in certain shots and there's just there's so many early directorial choices that they make and it's crazy to think that this is their second movie ever and it's just so well done that's what i was gonna say like this is super early coen brothers but it's like low-key a classic just like plot wise i feel like for them because i mean a lot of their movies it's it's a bit similar where it's just like a really weird storyline. It's this absurdist like, comedy that that yeah. fits in the lexicon of their films, I'd say. Yeah, and I think this is one of their their better early iterations for sure. Um, like I said, I haven't seen it for a while, but the cast is kind of the standout for me. Nick Cage, Holly Hunter, a lot of fun. I really like Frances McDormand in this movie. Um, I think she's pretty underrated in general. Uh, obviously, got a couple Oscars. Um, yeah, kind of just love me. Love me some wacky looking and, and kind of performance Nick Cage. Like you can't go wrong with that in general. And I think the shirt kind of uh, is the perfect thing you could put on Nick Cage. So yeah, love that. I like the flips that it does uh, when they decide to take the kid. Uh, Holly Hunter's character being the cop, the one that's supposed to be upholding the law, being the main force and like, get me that fucking baby. Like you're going to steal me this baby. And Nick Cage is like this lifelong thief that's just addicted to robbing gas stations that he's getting in trouble for. And he's got like the conscience that's like, I don't know if we should do this. I like the flip it does there. I think it, it does a really good job and it's believable. Like you could see that happening. Yeah, that dynamic is a lot of fun. But because it's like, I remember when we went and saw this, just the opening of the movie where it's like, laying out their romance of how she like arrests him and, and does the mug shot and she's just like falling in love with him just, all that stuff is so great and gets you hooked from this on this strange story right from the beginning nick cage's accent when he's trying to like hit on her and make her fall in love with him and everything i was like i believe this he's got some smooth moves over there like gonna make this cop fall in love with him as she's booking him to go to jail like it's very solid writing riz game insane from nick cage <laughs> nick cage is that guy yeah <laughs> that guy absolutely but yeah like i said i mean this is the second co like their second movie ever i actually just recently watched uh their first movie i've got it right here on dvd blood simple shout out uh the criterion collection recently picked this up like blood simple uh which is their <laughs> first movie and again it's just like but the, their sense of style and tone right off the bat, their ability to like build out these really interesting characters, it's just all really incredible. And honestly, I think they're probably, you know, I would consider them my one of my favorite directors. I think Oh Brother, Where Are Out Thou as like this turn of the classic Odyssey story into the American South is so fun and the music's incredible. Obviously, No Country for Old Men. Like I'm not is as high on it as like a best picture winner, but it is a best picture winner, right? Like, and Javier Bardem is one of the most iconic villains of all time playing Anton Chigurh. On top of that, Burn After Reading, one of my favorite Brad Pitt per performances and just kind of this weird like political espionage type thing a little bit uh, with John Malkovich and Francis McDormand as well. And then True Grit, I mean, 
Matt Damon in a supporting role, one of his best supporting performances. And you get a young Haley Steinfeld as well, which is great. True. Love her in Ender's Game. Um, but also, you, I mean, you left out Fargo and The Big Lebowski as well. I mean, their filmography is ridiculous, just how deep it is, I would say. I'm not as high on Inside Lewin Davis, but I mean, that's another one that people love. Yeah, yeah. I don't hate that movie. But uh, I mean, The Big Lebowski is probably their, I feel like, most iconic of that bunch. No Country for Old Men, obviously, best picture winner. I do really like that movie. I mean, Anton Chigurh, just psychopath. But Fargo, honestly, that may be my favorite out of the bunch. Burn After Reading is up there, too, for me. But I think Fargo is kind of just, like, their classic story. But, yeah, the Coen Brothers as a whole, you can't really go wrong with anything, I feel like. I feel like we got to mention the other people in this movie that are also, like, great. Like, John Goodman is in this. Sam McMurray. Mary Siebel. These people are, there's a solid cast of just like, that are just in there in a Nick Cage movie. Like John Goodman playing his jailhouse friend or whatever, that's just like annoyed that his woman's telling him what to do and stuff. Like it's, it's a fun dynamic. John Goodman is never better than when he's with the Coen brothers, like the positions that they put him in and making him just play these. I mean, like, obviously the dude in Lebowski is the iconic one, but just like their collaborations are always great. It's, it's, you can always tell when an actor has good people that want to push them to do their best. Like their roles are always better with those people. John Goodman's a great actor, but you're right with Coen brothers. He's like far and away better than any other time. I'm trying to see how many, okay, here we go. I'm going to, I think they have six collaborations. So he, uh, he's in the Hudsucker proxy. Inside Lewin Davis, Raising Arizona, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Barton Fink, and The Big Lebowski. So, uh, I mean, and of course, they've collaborated with Frances McDormand many times because Ethan is married to her. Is that right? Is it Ethan? I'm a lucky oh, man. I didn't even know that. Whichever brother it is. One of the two. One of the two of them is married to Frances McDormand. Oh. Joel. Joel is married. They've been married since 1984. Like, they've obviously, Fargo is... is huge for her and her career but you know she's um, amazing she's always great with them yeah they're gonna have some talented kids i think that's crazy Nepo babies well they do have one child who is it probably like the next president or <laughs> the complete opposite pedro mcdormand cohen there you go i like that and the first picture is him and pedro pascal hanging out so there you go <laughs> he's been using it does not appear that he has um he looks like someone I'd run away from. Has been successful in terms of celebrity. Um, but, you know, shout out yeah. Nepo Babies. He's got a good back tattoo on his Instagram. <laughs> shout out Ben Affleck. Maybe we get Pedro on the pod. He, I mean, we could probably get him, honestly, if he's not in this business. He's probably an easier get than Dave Batista. It looks like he might live in New York, so I'll have to go go uh, search him. Dave will, Dave will never come in. Any other thoughts on uh, on raising Arizona, guys? I wasn't expecting to like it when you were like, "Let's go see." We're gonna see this. I was like, "I'm just here for the brunch," you know, like <laughs> breakfast burrito and, they, and but then they didn't have brunch, right? Oh, that was annoying. Yeah, they fucking lied to us. But I just was like, I have no idea what this movie is. I don't really care if I like it or not. It is what it is, and then definitely a solid movie that I wouldn't mind watching again. Like I, I was pleasantly surprised by it. I was also like, I was not coming in with super high expectations, but I think it's my favorite Coen Brothers movie, honestly. Wow. That's saying a lot. I'd put it in my top 10. 
I think I've seen like three Coen Brothers movies, so I I do have it's my... in the top three. <laughs> well, I can say looking at my list of movies here, Raising Arizona is at ninety two, True Grits at ninety five, Burn After is at one hundred six, and No Country is at one hundred eight. So like they're all clustered up there of like four four and a half star movies. Like they're all just fantastic. I lied. I've seen four. I've seen True Grit. <laughs> there you go. Holly Hunter can kind of uh, lead us into a segue of Succession. And let's talk about Succession Season 4 as we move over to our weekly recommendations. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up! Spoilers for Episode 3, 2, and 1 of Season 4. So skip ahead, check the description if you want to not hear this. But let's talk about it. Logan Roy just died. What the fuck, Cody? genuinely started crying. (laughs) What a, wow. great, what a great fucking episode of television i mean i don't know i feel like uh for me this is one of the top eps of the series did not really holds a 10 out of 10 on imdb yeah. as a singular episode and i'll tell you i think it sets up the season perfectly but i i did not see it coming at all i mean losing brian cox on episode three is really just heartbreaking because i love brian cox but i think like i mean the show's called succession like I think the interesting part left in the story is seeing like who would take over the company if, you know, he does step away. So in that sense, I like also just like, it is unbelievably just realistic. Like, I mean, that's actually how. Did you watch any of the like post episode stuff where they talk about it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff about that too, but I mean, yeah, like that is what actually would happen. I feel like in the real world, if, if he died like that, like those are the conversations that you have over the phone so cool that way but yeah acting wise i mean off the wall three kids give them emmys give them all emmys like this i don't know i think um it's gonna even even crazier as we go along but yeah i fucking love this episode i think shifts was like the most heartbreaking and believable like just like her being pissed at her brothers for not pulling her in sooner and and sometimes her like emotional acting at points is not the best like her accent really comes through a lot and like she's she's asked to do a lot at different points i'll give her that but like i think in this episode she absolutely nailed it they all did to be fair she broke my heart when she came in and like was realizing what was actually happening and i told corbin this after the episode was over when they first got the call from tom and everything i was like this is an act logan's being a dick right now and is trying to just get his sympathy from his kids or whatever and like prove that they can't actually go against him because they weren't showing his face or anything. And I was like, that's it. No, they're not showing anything. And then they start showing actual chest compressions happening on somebody. And I was like, oh, fuck. They're really killing off Logan Roy right now. And I think that was beautifully done. Like, because that is something I think Logan Roy would do, too. Like, he's playing the game. He is enough of an asshole <laughs> to fuck yeah. with his kids like that. I thought the exact same thing. I thought they were joking. Because it was kind of a transition of like, oh, Rome just fired Jerry as well. And then like yeah. transitioning into the next call. So like it made sense in the episode, like somebody was calling too. But yeah, I, I thought they were full of shit. And <laughs> I feel like um, uh, Matthew McFadden, his acting in the episode was, was really good as well. Kind of just from like trying not to kind of harshen the blow, I feel like a little bit. But yeah, 
that I, I can see Logan Roy doing that. that <laughs> like, that, I wouldn't put it past him. Something I was pissed about the entire time was their lack of thinking Connor needed to be around at all for this. But it's so on brand. <laughs> but they think, oh, God, we go to go get Shiv. Shiv literally went to go talk to Connor. And so, like, you think their brain would still connect the two in that point. But it doesn't. And I was just so mad the whole time. I was like, I don't care how disconnected you are from your sibling. Like, that's fucked. I don't know. That bothered me, but it makes sense for the characters. Just, I didn't like it. I mean, they're all terrible people. Those moments shine through constantly through the series. Um, but what makes it so great is that it's able to pull you back in and still, like, make you want to root for them and see them succeed. Um, Cody, you said it. Like, the title of the Sower Succession, at some point, the reins had to get handed over, and realistically, it's become very clear that that was never going to happen while Logan Roy was alive. And so for in order for succession to happen, Logan has to die at some point. This is the final season. A lot of people thought everything was just building up to a death at the end of the show. I think this is so much smarter, so much more effective and lays us out to have an actual final season and to have everything, you know, everybody gets to war with each other and, and fight for that, you know, final role, which I think is fantastic. Something that I talked to Mino about when we were watching it and after the show, and as I was getting her to watch the show, I said, the later seasons are so much better because Brian Cox gets to cook. He's off his deathbed. Because you know what? That's the thing. Like the first episode, you get to see a little bit of him, but he's all kooky and out of it. And then he gets sick and he's not really around for those first couple episodes. And when he's back to full health and he's fighting and going head to head with the kids or specifically Kendall at first and then at different points, the kids, those are the best moments. And I, you know, am worried a little bit of what the show will look like without him and having his great acting in his presence, but the show is going to have to reconcile that and the characters are going to have to reconcile with that. So I think it's going to, you know, I don't know, it'll be really interesting to see how they handle it. It could either be really amazing or it could, you know, be like, you know, a big miss. So I'm looking forward to it. You did watch the after show stuff. There was some really interesting stuff that they talked about, specifically this idea of like, this is how death happens in the real life. Like you don't see it coming. You just get a call and you say, Hey, someone's passed away, whether it's a parent or a friend or a loved one, like no one can ever plan for these moments. So it makes a lot of sense that in the real world, these kids would have literally just spoken to him the night before, just had a conversation. And then you get that call that, Hey, your, your father's gone. Um, the other cool thing that I loved is that they talked about how they did all the scenes and they shot them all, but then they did one, like one -er yeah. of the whole thing of the like the 26 minute scene of them on the boat and it was really cool to talk about first of all they said they had it set up where since they're shooting on film they would like switch out the camera every 10 minutes to keep things rolling but they used a vast majority of that one take that they shot all in one day and there's something really powerful to the the dramatization and you know uh alan ruck mentioned that like acting is about the people that are around you and they were really all able to kind of connect for that scene and, and work it all in it i think it plays really well yeah, that was really cool just filmmaking how they made that, I think. And with the like the film too, they said for that scene they had like three uh, I think rotating cameras. Cause obviously it takes some time to reload that a little bit. So kind of just you could only shoot thing. for 10 minutes on film, so yeah. they're limited. The, the filmmaking behind that is is super cool as well. But yeah, I mean you said it's what Alan Ruck, I think, was Loki. I mean, Loki is really, really good. Like everybody's good in this. But I thought his part was was equally good. Even that scene of like them deciding to still get married. With I Willa, yeah. Good. Yeah, and I mean, emotionally, I feel like I didn't really care about those characters too much, but 
I feel like in this episode, like everybody was kind of on point. I really liked his shock taking over and his initial reaction of, well, he never liked me anyways. Like that's the first thing he says when he hears that his dad, his dad is dead. <laughs> and then he's like, and then he's like, I don't know why I said that. Like I, he didn't like me or whatever. He's like, my head's not there. And then they move locations and they get into this secluded area and then he breaks down a little bit and you hear his voice crack and you see him start to kind of cry and it's very powerful and like shows a lot about Connor I think and how he like what his initial thought would be and his ability to hold composure around others I mean all of them were able to do that and it was kind of impressive to me I think it showed a lot about those characters something that I said to Corbin was this feels pretty full circle for it like the first season starts with him getting sick and just having to deal with the kids for a little bit and it, it makes sense for it to be so early on that they actually lose him in this final season part of my response to Corbin's worry about the continuing of the season and like the kids because those first episodes are kind of rough without Brian Cox they also have just gotten progressively better as the seasons go on like all of their characters are so much more fun to watch and their dynamics without Brian are great together now so I think it's going to be still really fun to watch and I think it'll be interesting to see each of them try and take their own game further I'm looking forward to it I think this season's going to be insane I mean basically every season they've kind of done this thing where they have a massive twist at the end um so that's definitely coming but I think the next episode's probably just gonna be like the funeral and then probably the next two after that are just gonna be absolutely bonkers yeah I am ridiculously hyped I'm not gonna lie I'm, I'm excited for more Skarsgård Ooh, yeah. They can't seem to have a family event without their game playing happening still. Like Shiv can have her wedding without Kendall throwing a monkey wrench into the business. Like yeah. Connor's wedding, his dad dies and like they're all gaming <laughs> and stuff. Like they just all have these big life events that are happening and their game still continues as to who's going to take on. So I'm curious to see what happens at the funeral how much conversation is happening about who's going to take over. Because, like, at that point, that's all the question there is. Like, who is going to take over? I think that should be pretty interesting to see. Let's move over to uh, another S-titled TV show, Survivor. (laughs) Cody, uh, Merge episode, kind of. Technically not, but really, yes, it was. What would you think of it? I thought it was fun. I'm a sucker for a Merge episode. Probably one of my favorites of the season, obviously um yeah i mean pretty much a straightforward vote josh was a massive threat basically from two tribes which is and he was telling people he had an idol when he didn't yeah. so wasn't sure kind of how to play his misinformation that he had lied about and it kind of backfired you should probably just be like no it's a fake idol and then they're like oh, okay like nobody really cares. like show people like hey this is a shitty yeah. idol like i like i, I, I tried to them. make this to fool like jam jam and it worked because jam jam's an idiot but, <laughs> but he did figure it out but um yeah i thought it was a good episode i mean the the Kane versus uh, Jam Jam just throwaway votes I thought was interesting. Kane did end up winning that somehow, and Jam Jam got more of the split votes. So be you know who voted for Kane? Do you know who the one person who voted for Kane was? <laughs> uh, it was Carolyn. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking. God. They're gonna leave her out of every single vote, and dude, I don't know my my kind of like mid season prediction. I think Carolyn's gonna win, dude. I think she's actually a good player. She's got an idol in her pocket, I believe. I think she has a fake one, too. No, well, she gave the fake one. one. And then they voted the girl out right away. Oh, that's right. Well, okay. She's got an idol in her pocket, fair. But I think she's dangerous. And uh, her relationship with Carson, I think Carson's a gamer. He's making a massive move the next couple votes here and is going to take over the game. 
then he's probably like final five, final six gets taken out as a massive threat. And then who's left? Oh, it's fucking Carolyn against some nobodies. So I think they're going to keep ignoring Carolyn because she tried telling all of them it's a fake idol. Josh doesn't have shit. And they're like, no, she's wrong. I think they're going to continue. Yeah. I think they're going to continue to underestimate her abilities in the game and it's going to take her far. Yep. I agree. But uh, yeah, I thought it was a good episode. I mean, obvious vote, but I think the merge will be interesting going forward. I think possibly Franny and Matt are finally going to get targeted. Yeah. That's what the uh, next time on Survivor was seeming to indicate. We'll see. But um, there's still a lot of people up. So pretty much anything could happen in the next couple of votes here. I called that relationship in the very first episode before things got weird with them. And Corbin was like, no, it's just how they edit it, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no way. Next episode, he's all like, I'm in love. And I was like, fucking called this shit. I get over. I cannot handle it anymore. It's like, oh, God. I'm not It's very annoying. It's not like we're trying to watch Love Island. We're trying to watch Survivor. I don't need to watch this relationship blossom. I'm not here for it. Well, I've never must have never watched the original uh, Boston Bobs. They Listen. find love in a hopeless place, Mina. Come on, people have gotten married off Survivor, Mina. Multiple off of Survivor. Did they get married on it? No, not yet. These two are on their way to get married on Survivor. <laughs> <laughs> They're holding hands at night. <laughs> they are. Any other recommendations, Cody, that you've been into? Oh, let's see. Uh, there was a new Picard episode, but it was pretty bad, so we'll skip that. Quickly going through the movies that I've uh, binged pretty quickly. Shazam 1. I thought it was okay. You know, better than uh, Black Adam, so we'll give that. Uh, John Wick 2 and John Wick 3, the old double special. John Wick 2, like you said in our episode, it, it's pretty much just a John Wick with the Italians, so it was okay. John Wick 3, I, I really, really liked. I think I gave it four, four and a half stars on Letterboxd, uh, which is pretty high rating for me, I feel like, in general. Just nonstop action. I mean, you, you bring in throwing knives, you bring in Bobon, you bring in Dogs. Giant, uh, John Wick on a horse, uh, the, the motorcycle scene with the katanas, just awesome. So just nonstop, you know, finish to end. And um, I mean, a cool ending too, just Winston kind of throwing off a building. Do you think Halle Berry still needs to fire her agent? Or do you think that was a a good hit for her? Oh yeah, I mean definitely still fire the agent and hire me. But uh no, that was that was a pretty good role for her, I'd say. Bring Halle Berry back into action. I I back that. Uh hashtag my storm. But past (laughs) that, oh I did watch This Is the End too, randomly. Good comedy. Haven't seen it for a while, but uh goodie but an oldie. The power Uh, of Christ compels you. Hermione yeah, Granger yeah. stole all our shit. <laughs> Jonah, Jonah Hill and um, Emma Watson, both equally good in that movie. Uh, also, so Michael Sarah. <laughs> Rihanna, great, great slap. <laughs> yeah. And Rihanna. Oh um, I know so she that's... said that he could smack her ass for real if she could smack the shit out of him for yeah. real. And So he got it. He great got move. just absolutely popped in the face by Rihanna. <laughs> like, that's awesome. That's so funny. Enough, I love that both of them were game for that. They're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. And the backstreet back, you know, ending it all off. You can't you can't have it any, any other way. So love that movie. The only, the only other thing I have checked out uh, yesterday, I watched the first two episodes of The Last of Us. Not bad TV. I don't know the fungi people. They're interesting. <laughs> really good, like costume design. I'll definitely give them that. Episode three, Cody. You're in for a good one. But that's what I've heard. And I episode cried. two was tough. I mean, Tess, the death, death of Tess. I like her. I'll, obviously, it was only two episodes. 
and I've never seen the video game or anything, never played the video game. I mean, so I don't even know, like, Joel had a daughter originally, and, like, she just died from... That probably confused you, like, that's not Bella Ramsey, like, what yeah, the fuck is it happening? Does, it definitely did a moment. But then, I mean, she gets killed off by not even a fungus person, just by some idiot soldier, so kind of, yeah. like, the toughest way to go out in that scenario, too. So, cool backstory, but, yeah, the, the Cure Girl, I feel like, I mean, it's it's a story I've seen before, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty hooked. I think uh, I'll binge this one pretty quickly. How many episodes is it? Like 10? I don't know. Me and I got to, I guess, get back on the last of us train because yeah. we only made it through three. But yeah, oh, I think yeah. it's about nine or but, 10. I mean, it's good. We just, we got shit going. It's also Our lives really are busy. Episode. But like, Cody, it's up to your point. Like you've seen this before. That's the biggest thing I've heard from people is just like, what is this giving that The Walking Dead didn't give or like any other number of like zombie movies? Pedro Pascal. Which, yeah. I mean, I think it, <laughs> I think it's just a different take and it's kind of fun. Like the idea of it being based Fungus. on a video game Scary. and having it be so close Scary. to what the video game did, I think that's kind of cool. That's an, that's an achievement. Yeah, that is a thing in Ants too, where like it just takes them over completely. So evolution, man, it's coming. We are in the age of the video game adaptation. They are finally uh, figured out how to do it right. Super Mario Bros. and The Last of Us. I mean, two pillars of, of the I genre. Mean, Uncharted, get out of here. Shitty Bye-bye. movie. <laughs> Only two good video game adaptations ever, really. Yeah. Mortal Kombat, <laughs> classic Mario. one. Yeah, it's not really good though. It's entertaining, but I want a Fast and the Furious, but it just be Mario Kart. I'm here for that. Just get Dom on Rainbow Road. I'd he should just that. be a playable character in Mario Kart. Is like, I don't I don't want to see that movie. Let's be real. Oh, Come on. Every, but... Yes, you fucking do. Oh my god, that'd be so good. Every he looks, looks like, like Toad. Enemy. Like early Fast and Furious, like the like Fast and Furious, the first Looks one. Like <laughs> You're such a dick. Hey, short king, man. Short king. Shout out, Vano. Mina, what do you want to recommend to the people? Ted Lasso, for sure. That that just covers all your bases. You got your sports, you got your drama, you got your comedy. It's, it's you got everything. You got your there. Olivia Wilde, Jason Sudeikis drama. That's like in twined in the show Love subtext it. is the text uh i learned so much sonic the hedgehog there's a fucking video game movie for you cody eat my yeah, shorts but that just came out too jim carrey james marsden no but like i saw the ron clark movie which is an older movie with uh, matthew perry basically he's playing it's a biopic but he's playing this midwest teacher that moves out to new york because he heard that there's like a need for teaching out there and his specialty is raising standardized test scores so that schools can like get better money and funding and stuff and he ends up making his way into like this harlem school where these kids have these horrible behavior problems and whatnot because like their lives are awful outside of school he ends up like raising their scores and they have the highest scores in like the state and the school and they beat the honors kids and stuff like that and he like it's a story of him giving kids who think they have no choice but to complete the cycle of their parents over and over again, that they do have a choice and that, and, and like, if someone believes in them, it'll happen. He's got some school in Georgia now where he like teaches teachers how to not be shitty to their students when they have behavior problems, which is kind of interesting. It's a good movie, but it's like low key white savior, which is, you know, it, but it's real life. Like, so it happened. So like, it, it just kind of is what it is. Check that out. I guess if you want to learn about school. Any thoughts on Twilight? 
I gave enough thoughts on Twilight. I I think everyone's tired of hearing my thoughts on Twilight. Go go check out the April Fools episode. That's a great one yeah. that uh that Mina Actually, and Natalie did. It was a lot of fun. I think I talked more about other shit than I did Twilight on that episode. We kind of tangent hard on that episode. They were all somewhat related to Twilight, I will say. Um, yeah. That too, so. yeah. That's Cody, what this is all about. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's all time cap episode right there. I was back. Natalie loved it. You just were back <laughs> right now. Uh, You've both been had us back. back. Have us back. A couple things since Mina didn't want to mention it. We watched Murder Mystery 2. Oh, yeah. I was more of a Murder Mystery 1 fan than Murder Mystery <laughs> 2. Um, there's a big Eiffel Tower set piece, which leads me into my oh. other movie that I recently watched that was also bad, Men in Black International, which features a prominent Eiffel Tower set piece as well. Um, both of them are probably not as cool as the real Eiffel Tower, but I don't know. I've never been. So uh, bad movies all around. Yeah. I, it wasn't I, that what, bad. Like a one star or half Men star? Men in Black International was. <laughs> one no, star. That movie's yeah. terrible. But Murder Mystery 2 is not that bad. I've if you're expecting it. anything different than what you got, that's on you. Like... <laughs> It was just not as good as the first. I, I enjoyed the first one better. And this I'm one dead. was derivative and shitty. They're both bad. Yeah. I mean, the first one, three stars. I, I gave it two and a half. I didn't say it was the worst fucking thing I've ever. I mean, it's Netflix trash. I, you're right. I didn't expect a lot. Co- Cody, what do you think about Men in Black International? I actually haven't seen it. That's what I was going to say. So, because. Uh, oh, right. Because you hadn't seen any of the Men in Black movies. Right. So, yeah. I still haven't seen the third one either. Uh, with with uh, Mr. Brolin, so I fell off the minute. Dude, Men in Black Two was so bad. I I stopped watching the series. Here's also. here's the problem with Men in Black International is it's not a Men in Black movie. Like there's nothing about it other than there's aliens and they wear suits, kind of because they don't even wear the fucking suits for most of the movie. They wear it for maybe ten ten percent. Another 20%, they don't have the ties on. And another 80, Chris Hemsworth's in a fucking Hawaiian shirt undercover. It's bullshit. He, they try and make them cool. They don't make them funny. The only it connection, it, it's just it. stupid. Liam Neeson is in it. No, Liam Neeson's in it? Yeah, he's like third build. Uh, he's the and, actually. Kumail Nanjiani plays a little fucking tiny little alien, a pawn alien. I mean, this sounds great. I Rebecca believe- Ferguson shows up in the third act as like the surprise Chris Hemsworth love interest. I, I, I like Rebecca know. Ferguson. I believe my exact question when I saw it on the screen was, "Why the fuck are you watching that? Like, it's not a good movie. It's it's really bad." I've never seen it. That's a good duo, I think. Hemsworth and they were Austin trying to capitalize. <laughs> I think they're a fun duo. That Poor movie sucks. Or Ragnarok funded that movie basically. Men in Black International also suffers from the thing of like you put your two leads like a male and a female character and like in an older movie they would have you know had like a love interest thing happening right and like in a modern movie they like make it so sterilized and sexless that there's like no chemistry at all and like they can't even like play off each other whatsoever where they like try to like very much say like oh these two have no romantic feelings whatsoever where it's just like okay they don't even want to be in the same room it seems at points it's weird i don't know that movie but even then like relationships where they hate each other there's still more energy than in these stale ones like there's just never any energy it's just so dumb that movie was directed by F. Gary Gray, who directed Shredder Compton, a good movie, 
but also Fate of the Furious, a bad movie. So and then finally, uh, Friday night, Mina and I went and saw uh, Showing Up, which is the new film from Kelly Reichert starring <clears throat> Michelle Williams, along with Hong Chow in a supporting role. Um, and then Kelly Reichert was there after the show for a little bit of a Q&A, which was cool. The movie was okay. It's it's very like, um, there was one part of the Q&A that I did enjoy I, overall, the, the critic no offense to her, but the critic that was doing the questions, Mina and I both agreed, like, it was bad. Like, the questions were just not good. Um, Kelly Reichardt seemed a little bit annoyed by the questions that were being asked. Um, but at one point, she she talked about this idea of um, what she described as, like, uh, carrier bag fiction, which is, like, in the early days, like, if you imagine, like, what the early tools were that humans have, a lot of people think, like, oh, it was probably a hammer or some sort of weapon to, like, kill people. But, like, Another view would be like, realistically, the first tool would have been like some sort of bag to carry things around in and like to gather things. And this idea of the carrier bag type of fiction where it's like, we're learning, we're seeing the everyday lives of people. It's the simple things. It's the bag that you bring with you to carry things around. And, and this is about that kind of attitude of, of life. And it's, it's set in Oregon and it's very Oregon-esque and Michelle Williams is playing an artist. And it's basically just kind of like, a couple days in her life and her strange family and she's struggling and she's got Hong Chow as her friend slash landlord, which is a great dynamic. And um, it's also got Andre 3000 in it, which um, she shared that Andre 3000 would just walk around set playing his flute, which sounds like a wonderful magical time in the uh, Oregon wilderness. (laughs) There's actually flute music like playing and whatnot for like, one of the classes that's happening and it they just asked can we just film you and they did for like what was the 45 minutes to an hour yeah that's what they said they just filmed him playing his flute his flute so that they could have that in the movie and it's beautiful so i can't imagine having that on set every day just enjoying that as your backdrop for work that sounds lovely (laughs) the q a when we when they went to questions from the audience were actually enjoyable i was like I can handle this now, but I wanted to get up and leave at the beginning of the Q and A because the person asking questions, it was like, "Did you just watch the movie right now? Hope that you have the good questions because you don't." It was rough. At one point, the director actually was like, "I'm not answering that to one of the questions she asked," yeah. and they answered something else. Like it was pretty funny. But um, yeah, a twenty four film um, in theaters now. You can go check it out. Um, but you know. I'm not a big art guy. So the, that part didn't really speak to me as much, especially like sculpture and, and that kind of thing. Um, but there's the, there's an interest and appreciation for like what it takes to make art and make it happen. And what it's, you know, like living in the Pacific Northwest and kind of just being like this small time struggling artist. And there's a lot of angst. And the interesting thing to me was like throughout the movie, Michelle Williams is like working on these sculptures and like, Every time somebody would see her work, they'd be like, oh, that's so great. To me, there felt like this underlying like disappointment or like, di- like everyone like, because there's that thing of like, when you see art, you kind of have to be like, oh yeah, that's so cool. Like what you did was awesome. Um, and I think they, it captured like that feeling and that kind of like, from the perspective of Michelle Williams of like, do these people actually care about the things that I'm making or do, do they like them at all? Um, and, and I think as someone who's like made things and, and produces things at different times, like th- those types of feelings were definitely interesting to explore and examine in a movie like this. Um, it kind okay. of just ends. It's one of those where it's just like, 
two people walking down the street and there's no real resolution to any of the problems or anything in the movie um so if you don't like that then you probably won't like this movie (laughs) i think part of your your art questioning point you just made there corbin is like something that was so great about hong chow's performance because she's kind of like they've got their dynamic is like she's kind of the better artist between the two like everyone loves her art she's got she's got two shows yeah exactly and she's the first one from this school to be doing one of these shows to be highlighted to be sponsored it's like this big deal and and michelle williams mom like works for the art place so it's like a weird like a nepo thing rough because her mom doesn't even like her work as much she likes her landlord's work (laughs) really rough but like Hong Chao like will comment on Michelle Williams art and you can kind of hear the underlying tone of like I'm just saying this because I have to and I actually think this is dog shit kind of and like I think the way she says it it sounds sarcastic without it sounding sarcastic it I don't know her she's great I like she's really great, in that, really great I really did not like Michelle Williams in it very much She's kind of hot and cold for me with her performances. A lot of great croc representation. I will say that. No, she needs more giblets. If that pigeon does not get an Oscar nom, I'm canceling the Oscars. There's a pigeon, Cody. Cody. And it's pivotal to the movie. Great performance. (laughs) You got to watch it just for the pigeon. All right. Well, Mina, thank you for coming on the episode. Yeah. Really appreciate having you on uh, for two yeah. episodes in a row. You've been on in our last two episodes. You've been on them more than Cody and I. So. That's true. Uh, but thank like you so much back. for coming. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah, it was good to uh, do another cap chat and uh, look forward to doing another one of these in the future. True. If you want to be the next guest on uh, cap chats, shoot the shit. Definitely let us know. Thanks for listening. Stay capping. Peace. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it.